Welcome to Right on Prime. Happy September, everyone. I'm Heidi James, and back in the co-host hot seat with me once again this month is none other than her very self, Vanessa Carty. How are you doing, Vanessa? I'm all right, thanks, Heidi. And it's one of my favorite times of the year because here, kids are going back to school here in the Northern Hemisphere, so there's the smell of freshly sharpened pencils and brand new binders, and I love it. Back to routine. Oh, back to school. Back to school. And speaking of routine, we usually talk about a case before we jump into the main show. Is there something that you wanted to share with us this month? I do indeed. I have a case. So the community where I work is serviced by a very small dentistry department that is at the best of times, very short-staffed and underfunded, but that is still able to keep doing amazing work under those conditions. However, in the recent years and months with serious COVID-related delays coming in and affecting access to care, we are now seeing a veritable tsunami of patients with dental issues who come to the emergency room and the primary care offices seeking care. And have you seen any trends like this in your neck of the woods? Oh, yes, definitely. Everybody is backlogged, but it seems to be even more so the case in dentistry. Yeah, so I thought this would be a good time to do a refresher on a few common and one not-so-common cause of dental pain. I want to look at how to differentiate them and what to do about them. Because remember, as much as we would like it to be, not every dental pain is an abscess. Fie, fie, why can't it be? Because abscesses <laughs> are so easy compared to some of the other things. All right. So to help me illustrate this issue, I'm actually going to describe one patient who came to see me who actually had a few different separate dental issues. So this was a 38-year-old man with type 2 diabetes, hypertension, and who'd had a STEMI six months prior for which he'd had two stents placed. He was on metformin, ramipril, clopidogrel, and aspirin. His glucose control was not great with a hemoglobin A1c of 9.2, but his hypertension was well controlled at least. And he was actually being seen by the nurse at our clinic for a follow-up of his diabetes, and the nurse noticed that he seemed to be in a degree of pain. He wasn't really moving his mouth very well when he talked, and he seemed to have a bit of facial swelling. So she asked me to see him. Oh, sounds like he was pretty uncomfortable. Were you able to get much of a history from him, or did the pain really preclude talking? He was able to talk a wee bit, and I was able to find out that about two weeks ago, he noticed that one of his lower back teeth seemed more sensitive than usual to cold and hot drinks. He said he'd always had sensitive teeth since as long as he could remember, but now the pain was lasting for longer, and it was much more noticeable. He also said that he had developed three very painful right upper teeth about two days ago. His gum and his lip were sore, so much so that he couldn't really bear to lift up his lip to check the gum area, and now his cheek overlying the area also felt warm and tender. He hadn't checked his temperature at home, but he did say that he'd felt feverish and had chills the night before. He had no nausea or vomiting, but he was definitely feeling fatigued, and he'd lost his appetite over the previous day or so as well. Whew, what had he tried for pain at home? Because most of these patients would have already had at least, at least two and a half bottles of acetaminophen before they came in. Well, exactly that. He had tried acetaminophen, and for the first day of symptoms with just the mild sensitivity to hot and cold, it had helped a wee bit, but now it really wasn't doing anything. Okay, now you're mentioning that pain is coming from two different areas of the mouth, and you're using words that I love to hear, words like right upper and left lower. And these are words that, unfortunately, whenever I have to call dentistry or OMF or maxillary facial surgery, they're like, excuse me, what does that actually mean in terms that we're supposed to use? So what are the real terms we're supposed to use when describing teeth? I know, it's so depressing. I mean, it's such an obvious way to describe it, right? Like, I know <laughs> totally. it's, the, it's the lazy person's teeth identification system. And I don't know why <laughs> I find this so hard, but I have 
it's impossible for me to remember this. I have tried so many different ways. And I think maybe it's because there's more than one system for identifying teeth, which is just bonkers, if you ask me. There's the one that's used in the United States, which is ironically known as the universal numbering system, but apparently it's only used in the United States. And that's the only thing that matters. And then the one used in the rest of the world, which is called the FDI, World Dental Federation Notation System. I find the US one the simplest, but we will put an image of each of them into the show notes for reference in case you prefer the FDI version. So in the US one, imagine you're looking into a patient's mouth. The right maxillary third molar, i.e. the back, upper right wisdom tooth, is tooth number one. And you count around from there along the upper teeth, ending at 16 on the left maxillary third molar. And then you move down to the lower back teeth on the left side, so just one little step down, and then that wisdom tooth is number 17. Count around until you end up on the back teeth on the bottom of the right side, which should bring you to 32. Clear as mud? I think I understand it, Vanessa, but let's put your system to the test. Tell us in this case, which teeth were affected. Okay, so based on the U.S. system, he had hot-cold sensitivity to teeth 18, 19, and 20, and the more severe pain on the upper teeth was teeth 4, 5, and 6, with number 5 being the worst. Vanessa, I have always been impressed with you, but now even more so, because you can use numbers to name teeth. That's pretty impressive. No, I can do that right now because I'm looking at my notes. I can guarantee you the next time I'm talking to a dentist, I'll say it's the pointy one on the right under his cheekbone. I call the big one bitey. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Okay. You've been able to identify the teeth that are the problem. I assume that that means you did examine the patient. So why don't you tell us what you saw when you looked into his mouth? So I started with the least painful area first. In other words, teeth number 18, 19, and 20. There was no percussion tenderness and no apparent redness or swelling of the gum line. There was no abscess that I could see, and there were also no visible cavities or cracks or other signs of trauma to those teeth. So what I did was I took a syringe with cold water and I squirted cold water onto it, and that hurt a lot. Not just for a few seconds with the shock of the cold, but for a fair bit after the fact. Why did you put cold water on it, Vanessa? Well, I'm going to talk about that in a little bit, but it's going to help me differentiate between different types of pulpitis, which is what I was suspecting for this fellow. And then after I'd done tormenting him on that side, I moved over to the right upper jaw. So teeth four, five, and six. His face was swollen to the right of his lips, and there was even a little bit of erythema on his cheek. It was very faint erythema, but it was definitely there. And just moving his lips hurt him, and it was really painful when I pried up his lip to visualize that gum. Tell me what you saw when you looked at his gum. What I saw was a mess, like a royal mess. His gum and his gum line were swollen, but he also had what literally looked like a thrombosed hemorrhoid (laughs) on his gum line. It was bluish black, swollen, tense, foul-smelling, and exquisitely tender. That sounds horrible. Yeah, I felt terrible for this poor man. Okay, so this guy has at least, at least two different things going on, two different kinds of pain, two different presentations. So what did you do? I would have probably just gotten an IV, started him on Piptaz, and called my dentist and impressed them with my fancy numbering system. What did you do, though? (laughs) Well, I did, you know, call the dentist. But first, I thought maybe I should try and diagnose him first to figure out what I was dealing with. So I went with the low-hanging fruit first, or the low-hanging teeth, and I started with teeth 18, 19, and 20, the ones that were sensitive to hot cold. I could see that the gums looked okay, so I'd ruled out gingivitis, and I also had noted that there were no signs of this dental abscess. So this really left me with a diagnosis of pulpitis. There are different degrees of pulpitis, and one way for you to quickly differentiate them in your office or in the emergency room is by getting a syringe of either very cold or pretty hot water, is what the experts say. 
I tend to go with very cold water, and you squirt it over the tooth. If the patient experiences a brief surge of pain, then that is reversible palpitus. Whereas if the pain is severe and lasts longer than a few seconds, this is considered to be irreversible palpitus. Remember that sometimes you might miss an abscess on the lingual aspect of the gum as well. So if you're doing this test and the pain is really awful and just doesn't improve after, you know, at least 30 seconds to a minute or so, that could be an actual hint that there is an abscess hiding in there that you need to go looking for. If a patient has a tooth that was once painful, but now has no pain response with the squirty squirt of the cold water, you have to be worried about the pulp. That pulp could be necrotic and dead. So is that what's going on? Yep, that's exactly right. So if uh, and this patient isn't presenting with that particular issue, but if you had a patient like that, you know, said, it's weird, a couple of weeks ago this really hurt, now it doesn't do anything, then you're concerned that that pulp is now gonzo, so they need to see the dentist. Gonzo, okay. Now, what about teeth number four, five, six? Actually, those ones seem to be showing signs of something more distressing than even an abscess. His gingiva in that region were friable. The gums and affected teeth were exquisitely painful. And upon closer examination of that bluish, blackish mass at the gum line, there were small areas of ulceration on the gums and the interdental papilla. So he also had really foul-smelling halitosis and some mild erythema and edema over the cheek on that side. And so to me, this looked like classic acute necrotizing ulcerative gingivitis, also known very charmingly as trench mouth. Ah, trench mouth. Yes. What an evocative name. Is this something that you've seen a lot of? And were you confident in that diagnosis? I've seen a lot of dental abscesses in my career, and at first I thought that this was what this was going to be. Even the bluish discoloration of the mass on the gum didn't convince me at first glance, because remember he was on dual antiplatelet therapy, and I thought maybe he had a bit of gingivitis with gingival bleeding and perhaps an abscess to boot. But when I took a closer look and really was able to get in there with a light, I was able to appreciate how much inflammation and necrosis there was localized to the region. So what did you do with this gentleman with 4, 5, 6, 18, 19, 20 teeth and gum issues? Now you're showing off. <laughs> <laughs> well, for the management of this, let's tackle the two problems that he had separately, just for the sake of clarity. So for the lower teeth with what seemed to be irreversible pulpitis, I offered a few doses of NSAIDs and I considered a dental block. If he hadn't had the concomitant trench mouth on the other side, which was far more painful and for which I was anticipating the need of a dental block, I would have gone with the block on the left on those uh, lower sensitive teeth because um, I knew it was going to be a while until he would see the dentist and I thought that would give him pain. But I was anticipating having to do a block on the other side, so I didn't want to freeze both sides of this poor man's mouth. But while preparing for this talk, I also learned that dexamethasone is an option as well, which would have been nice to know because I was a tad leery of giving this gentleman NSAIDs for days on end given his history of STEMI, hypertension, and his dual antiplatelet therapy. One dose of dex and a dental block, if that's all he'd had, would have been great. You can also apply dental paste to the affected teeth to help protect against painful triggers, but really getting them to the dentist in a timely fashion is the answer. And for the acute necrotizing ulcerative gingivitis, which is a very long word. You can call it a nug, but I don't think that sounds good. This is a more serious issue and can lead to complications such as deep space infections and bony involvement. So good pain control, debridement, and antibiotic therapy are key. NSAIDs are great if your patient can tolerate them, but they might need opiates for at least a day or two. Trench mouth or acute necrotizing ulcerative gingivitis is often polymicrobial, affecting those who are immunocompromised. Remember, he is diabetic here. So you want something that's going to cover multiple bugs. I went with Clinda to help with the associated cellulitis on the cheek as well, and I chose IV because he was in so much pain. I knew he was going to need to be admitted and given IV hydration, as he really couldn't open his mouth and he really couldn't tolerate PO. 
I consulted the dentistry folks who also suggested chlorhexidine rinses BID, and they actually saw him to debride the area. I hope this guy had good insurance because I see a lot of dentistry visits in his future. Indeed, and also primary care visits. He clearly needed better control of his diabetes, and these episodes with dental infections actually helped convince him that it was time to get serious about his sugars. A STEMI didn't do it for him, but a few trips to the dentist did, and I can sort of see why. Okay, this is a fascinating case. We can always use a refresher on dental issues. So how about a nice summary for a little bit of spaced repetition so we know what the nuggets are the next time we see Trenchmouth and its associates? Sure thing. So if a patient comes in saying their tooth hurts, find out what they mean by that to start with. Is it hot, cold sensitive, or is it a relentless pain that doesn't go away? If their gums look normal and their tooth looks normal and it's hot, cold, think pulpitis. If their gums are swollen, think gingivitis, and if you see a collection of pus, think abscess. If they have systemic symptoms, foul breath, and possibly swollen glands, along with ulcerations and edema of the gum and the interdental papilla, think trench mouth or its fancy name, acute necrotizing ulcerative gingivitis. A nug. <laughs> For treatment, NSAIDs can help most folks if they can tolerate them. Abscesses really need drainage, and a nug or trench mouth needs debridement. For more serious abscesses and ANUG, throw in some antibiotics, and most importantly, get a dentist involved. That was interesting and makes me very glad I'm not a dentist and that I can focus on all other parts of the human body as well. And speaking of which, let's talk about what else we're covering on the show. Well, in Reviews and Perspectives with Hobie, you join Hobie to talk about everyone's favorite statistical term, the NNT, number needed to treat. And on The Generalist, Casey Parker drops by to chat about using POCUS to evaluate patients for DVT when you see them in the office. Chris Drum joined me to talk about the approach to eosinophilic esophagitis. And then for our specialist corner this month, Dr. Chadwick Williams, GI doc extraordinaire, chatted with you, Vanessa, about NAFLD, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. We will no longer be baffled about NAFLD, <laughs> which is good because we're seeing more and more of this. And it's nice to have a stepwise approach to dealing with it. On the urgent care segment this month, they focused on hiccups, while on rural med, I shared a recent case I had of a man who had a gurgling tummy. Oh, and also a pulsatile mass. Hopefully these teasers will leave you suitably intrigued so you dive right on into September 22 right on Prime. And after that, we'll catch you on the other side for the summary. Coming to you from semi-scenic Loma Linda, California, it's Reviews and Perspectives with Dr. Hobart Lee. Okay, Heidi, good to see you. How are you doing? I am doing swell, Hobie. I'm doing great. I'm excited to be here and excited to be chatting with you. Okay, so I have a question for you. What was your favorite subject in school growing up? You know, I really like school, period. But if I had to pick a favorite topic, I'd definitely say history. Ooh. Yeah. What is it about history that you loved? I'm nosy. I think that's why I went into family medicine. I'm nosy. Like history is like you get to go see how all these people live their lives. And medicine, you get to see how people are living their lives. It's pretty exciting. How about you? What's your favorite subject? Well, uh, not too original, but I loved math. I was a very nerdy kid. And so I loved math and science growing up. And in honor of that, I think we're going to talk about statistics today. Fantastic. So we're going to keep the math simple, but we are going to review a topic that I think is important for primary care docs to understand, to explain to patients, and to know some of the rough numbers for some of the common interventions we prescribe to patients. Ooh, this sounds like it can be incredibly helpful because our patients like to know how information applies to them. So which stat are we talking about? Yeah, we're going to talk about 
wonderful number needed to treat, or NNT. Yes, that rolls off the tongue so well. And I'm glad we're talking about this in detail, because Steve and Ken often touch on it when they like review their PCMA papers. So it'd be really great to explain it in a bit more detail. Just as a review, there are a bunch of stats that help us describe how big a treatment effect is. And NNT is one of those, correct? Yeah, absolutely. So the others would be statistics like relative risk, absolute risk, and odds ratio. And each of these has their own strengths and weaknesses as a stat. But today, we really want to focus in on NNT. So Heidi, do you remember how to calculate NNT? Oh, of course, of course, she says with her fingers crossed as the kids do when they're lying right. and they just don't That's want right. you to know. Yeah, yeah, no. Yes, I, I do actually remember this one. It's one divided by the absolute risk reduction. So one over ARR. And if the absolute risk reduction was 0.5, then the NNT would be one divided by 0.5 or two. Yeah, perfect. So we would say in this intervention, right, you would need to treat two patients for one patient to benefit, right? And that's what we like about this statistic is it's really easy to understand. An absolute risk reduction of 0.5 seems a little abstract, but stating it that you need to treat two patients for one to benefit is more consistent with our actual work as a primary care doctor. Okay, I know we're going to talk about what some common NNTs for therapies are in a little bit, but can we first review what some limitations are to using the NNT? Yeah, that's a great question. I love NNT, but it's not perfect, right? And I think that one of the biggest limitations of this statistic is that it's dependent on the baseline control rate. So when a baseline event rate or what happens in natural life if no treatment or intervention is high, then the NNT will be low. This can be particularly tricky if you are calculating NNT in a small trial where random expected variability can make the baseline control rate high. Okay, okay. But that, if I'm not mistaken, can also be to our advantage, right? Since most diseases and outcomes are rare, the control rate will naturally be low, so the NNT should be high, right? Yes. Yes, okay. So other stats, like a relative risk per se, for example, might look impressive, but that's because the outcome's rare. And we would actually have to treat a lot of patients in order to achieve the desired reduction in outcome. Yes, perfect, right? Yeah. And so I know we're getting into the weeds here, but we're trying to set this up so everyone can follow along. And one more thing to mention is that you will often hear number needed to harm or NNH, which is like the evil twin of the NNT. Right? It's commonly used to describe events like side effects or adverse outcomes from an intervention like a new drug. You know, anytime we talk about NNT or NNH, I feel like we need a like a Marvel movie featuring these uh, demigods or whatever they are. <laughs> oh, man. So, okay, let's take a breath, though. I think a certain percentage of our listeners are geeking out, like you are. Like, I can see you on the screen here, and you are living your best life right now. Absolutely. Because we're talking about stats. That's right. You've pulled your calculator out of your pocket protector, as I'm sure many listeners have. <laughs> then there are some that I might relate to a little bit more, to be honest, who are getting a little bit dizzy trying to keep the math straight while listening here. So if you're thinking, I really need to review this stat stuff in more detail, or if you have boards or research coming up, 
We actually did a whole section on EBM, including NNT and our Crunch Time Family Medicine Board Review. So I'd encourage you to go listen to that and listen to it again and listen to it again. Check it out. There's everything you need to know about NNT and other EBM stuff there. Okay, good plug. I think the main takeaway is that NNT helps us explain that not all patients are helped by an intervention. Some benefit, but most do not. And I think that's a concept that most patients do not understand. They think, my doc gave me this medicine, so I will benefit. Yeah, and truthfully, I think a lot of us physicians think that as well. Like if there's Mm -hmm. a study or an expert tells me this medication works, it's going to work. But more accurately, we should say that in a group of patients with a particular condition, this intervention will help some, not all, some. And since we can't figure out exactly who it will help, the best we can do is to treat all of the patients with it, knowing that some will benefit, some will not, and that some, unfortunately, might even be harmed by side effects. The good old NNH. Ha ha ha. We meet again. So, yeah, and I'll be honest, I'm not always taking the time to explain this idea of NNT to patients, right? I'm much more likely to give them a medicine and say, this is the first-line therapy for this condition which is technically a true statement, but it doesn't take into account the idea of NNT. Okay, now that we've talked about the theory and the math, let's go over some common NNTs. And the data for these numbers are from the website that many of us know and love, the NNT.com. And the site has summarized a lot of studies and has reliable information. Okay, so let's take hypertension, a very common condition, right? What do you think the NNT is to prevent one death over five years in patients who take antihypertensives? I want it to be two. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's a a little bit north of two. A little bit north of two, actually. Yeah, you gave me the number. It's 125, Hobartley. Yes. The NNT is 125. That's mind-blowing. That means we have to treat 125 hypertensive patients with antihypertensive for five years to prevent one death. That's a lot of meds. And that is far higher than I would have guessed. I mean, I guess when you look at this, the caveat could be that five years might actually be a little bit too short a time to feel the effect of longstanding hypertension, because we're really playing the long game with hypertension here. If you look at other NNTs related to hypertension and five years of treatment, for stroke, it's 67. And for non-fatal and fatal MI, it's 100. So a little bit better, but still far higher than I would have liked to see them. Yeah, right. And I think the trick here is I think if you told patients you have a one in 125 chance of benefiting from this drug and not dying if you take it for five years, some patients might say those odds seem kind of lousy, right? Yeah. Even though we would say that a lot of our interventions kind of fall in this category, right? Wow. So let's take something a little less serious. How about corticosteroids for a sore throat? Okay, we can talk about that as long as we uh, use the caveat that sore throat is a, not actually a medical diagnosis, yeah. but it can, <laughs> it can include stuff like group A strep and, and an awful lot of viral pharyngitis too. But the NNT here was five. So that's an NNT to reduce pain at 24 or 48 hours. So yeah, I agree with you. There's uh, a lot of heterogeneity in the type and dosing of corticosteroid. And so many of these patients also got antibiotics on top of their steroids. But you can see that NNT was much better, right, to reduce pain at 24, 48 hours compared to something like treating hypertension, which we would all say is very, very important to do for our patients. Yeah. Okay, 
Now, my turn to quiz you. This is one that you and I love to talk about off camera. Statins. Statins and low-risk primary prevention. What's the NNT there? Yeah, so the NNT to prevent one non-fatal heart attack is 217. And the NNT to prevent one non-fatal stroke is 313. Good heavens. NNH, or the number needs to harm, is 21 for myalgia and 204 for a new onset diabetes related to taking statins. So I think if you were to present this data to a patient, I think some patients might say, forget the statin, right? I'm going to focus on changing my diet and exercises and other interventions because, again, for a low-risk primary prevention patient, statin may not be the best option for every single patient. Yeah, I mean, you can get your myalgias from exercising. But, uh... <laughs> <laughs> That's right. If you're desperate for myalgia, there are other ways to get that. And there are other ways to get new-onset diabetes besides taking a statin. <laughs> Right? I'd be like, hmm, maybe we'll eat more chocolate bars and exercise a bit more. So <laughs> That's right. Would you rather eat potato chips or take a statin to get your diabetes? Which one, which one would you like? Are those my only two options? <laughs> I think you and I are pretty firmly in the very selective use of statins in uh, primary prevention for low-risk people. And I think these numbers just uh, keep our opinions where they are. <laughs> yeah. And let's be clear. We're emphasizing these are low-risk primary prevention patients, right? So if it's a secondary prevention, somebody's already had demonstrated cardiovascular disease, somebody's at very high risk because of other comorbidities they have, obviously that changes those treatment numbers quite a bit, right? Yeah. But I would say a lot of our patients, at least I'd say personally, a lot of my patients in my primary care clinic, they're low-risk primary prevention patients, right? I mean, they fall in that category and it's incorrect to attribute the same numbers for high-risk patients to low-risk patients. Yeah, it sure is. It sure is. Okay, Hobie, time for the last one. And this is a common cancer screening test. Okay, we're going to talk about PSA for prostate cancer. Because we can use the number needed, the NNT, when we're thinking about screening tests, especially cancer screening tests. So what number do we need to screen to prevent one prostate cancer-related death? Yeah, so for men 55 to 69, you need to screen 770 men to prevent one prostate cancer-related death. There are some negative outcomes from screening, however, as patients who chose either surgery or radiation for biopsy-proven prostate cancer, they can experience erectile dysfunction or urinary incontinence as a result from that treatment. So I think framing cancer screening using number needed is one way to explain that screening is beneficial at a population level, but at any given patient may or may not benefit from screening, particularly when issues like overdiagnosis or adverse outcomes from testing or testing treatment are taken into consideration. Hmm. So NNT is really a versatile statistic that can be applied to both screening and to uh, therapeutic modalities. I think so. And I think it's the more comfortable we as primary care physicians feel about looking at that number, calculating that number, thinking about that number. I think that gives us added strategies in terms of how to talk to our patients about whether any given treatment or screening test might be appropriate for them to consider. So if you would like to get your calculator out of your pocket protector, the calculation is one over absolute risk reduction. If you, like me, would prefer to have somebody else do that work, the nnt.com is a great source of common NNTs for conditions we often see people concerning. This is a good one, Hobie. Thank you so much. I am motivated now to contact you anytime I need some sats done. (laughs) That's fine. I'm happy to refer you to the website. (laughs) Perfect. 
got a 50-year-old man in cardiac arrest, and our building just lost power. All right, give me jumper cables, rubber gloves, 3,000 grams of Soul Medrol. Stack. What are you, MacGyver? No, I'm the generalist. generalist. Lower limb pain and swelling can have a number of causes. Some are easy to sort out with history and clinical examination. However, there are a few important diagnoses that need an ultrasound to make the actual diagnosis. The big one that we really don't want to miss is a DVT. Lower limb clots are important to find as we can make a big difference to patient outcomes with timely anticoagulation. So Dr. Casey Parker is back with some primary care ultrasound pearls to help us with the acute swollen leg. Welcome back, Casey. And right off the bat, how should we approach these patients with our trusty bedside ultrasound machine? Yeah, this is a really tricky area, Vanessa. The diagnosis of venous thromboembolic disease is really probabilistic in nature. Ultrasound is the test of choice, but it really does need to be integrated into a robust risk stratification strategy. Always start with the pretest guesstimation of the risk of DVT. So we can use clinical decision tools such as the Wells score to try and decide who is low, medium, or high risk. Most primary care docs are in the fortunate position of knowing their patient very well and have some really good clinical gestalt on their side, so that's very helpful. And we should not underestimate this spidey sense when making guesses about risk of DVT. Spidey sense. Danger. Yeah, I completely agree. Acute unilateral lower limb pain and swelling that cannot be explained by history or exam alone with everything else we know about a patient, should ring some alarm bells. So to start, always use history and exam to kick off the bat. And then we do have the trusty D-dimer up our sleeve to help rule out VTE as well. Okay, well, I'm going to groan loudly here. Because, of course, as we all know, the D-dimer is one of those tests that we really need to know how to use in order to make rational decisions about DVT. Now, does a negative dimer exclude DVT? Well, Vanessa, I think the answer there is sometimes. If your clinical story or your gut feeling or your well score are low or medium risk, then a negative D-dimer within a few days of the onset of symptoms is really a very useful test. A low-risk patient with a negative D-dimer probably doesn't even need a scan, but it can be useful to help identify acute alternative diagnosis to bring out the ultrasound. Right, that's a really good point. Now, in such a risky area, finding a clear alternative diagnosis that explains the patient's symptoms, such as a calf muscle tear or hematoma, is really useful, and that may prevent us from doing harm with any unnecessary anticoagulant therapy. Absolutely. It's one of my favorite scans when we find a really nasty gastrocnemius tear, and we can say with confidence that this patient will be fine with just a bit of physical therapy. Okay, so let's back up a wee bit here. From what I can tell, a full comprehensive DVT ultrasound is quite complex and requires a lot of sonographic technique and know-how. You can see color Doppler, spectral traces, and it can be really tough to follow all of those small calf veins. So is this really an achievable goal in the primary care setting? Yeah, that's a really good point, Vanessa. For me, it takes me about 30 minutes to do a proper single leg DVT scan. And depending on the patient's anatomy, it can be really tough to see all of the veins. That is the common femoral vein, the popliteal veins. There's a pretty high pickup rate, but when you get down below the knee, it can be really, really tricky. So depending on your patient's symptoms, it may be adequate to just stick with scanning the big vessels that are up above the knee. Yeah, and we know that the dangerous ones are above the knee, right? And although the smaller distal vein clots can certainly extend up into the thigh, these will take time to grow and we'll have a day or two to get them a formal scan if we're concerned or if the patient has any good localizing symptoms. Yep, it is the thigh and groin clots that we really need to know about today. So we can do a three-point scan of the groin, the mid-thigh, and the popliteal veins, 
and pick up around about 95% of the important clots. Obviously, in patients with really strong risk factors such as malignancy or having had a previous big DVT, then we can't really relax after an office scan. These folk really do need a formal radiology scan. How do we actually do this focused three-point scan? It sounds pretty simple, but am I deluding myself? No, the three-point DVT scan is actually really quite fast. The veins are big, the anatomy is pretty straightforward and pretty reliable, and with the patient positioned in a reverse Trendelenburg position, with a little towel over the genitals of the groin for privacy, you identify the common femoral vein, where the saphenofemoral junction is, that's where the saphenous vein joins in, just below the inguinal line. And once you find the veins, you can compress them and flatten them, as they lie just adjacent to the artery. If you can squash it flat, then there's no clot at that level, and you proceed on down the leg. So we just look for sort of compressibility at each level down the thigh? And if it is compressible, then it's okay, is that right? Yeah, that's right. When we do a formal scan, we stop every centimetre or so as we go down to thigh, checking for compression to make sure it's a collapsing vein. And this is pretty quick. The three-point scan requires compression at the groin, about halfway down in the mid-thigh, and then once again in the popliteal fossa. Okay, well, this sounds achievable in a busy office day. You find the big veins and you squish them. You can follow them all the way down to the thigh, to the knee fold, and then you're done. But are there any other traps that we need to look out for? Yeah, you've got to be a little bit careful in patients that have had a previous DVT. Often there will be old clots, scarring, and sometimes even collateral circulation, which can be really hard to pick from a new clot. Luckily, that's something we sort of know about as primary care docs, and we can refer these folks for a formal scan. It can be really tough to visualise the mid and the lower femoral vein in larger patients or patients that are particularly immobile. So you may need to switch from the high-frequency linear probe, which we traditionally use, to an abdominal or curvilinear probe to achieve better penetration in these patients. Yeah, and this is really sort of a point for all of our bedside office scanning. If your scan is limited by physics or anatomy, then you should know when to call it incomplete and refer for an official radiology scan. Even the best bedside machines we can get are still nowhere near as powerful as the big machines that most radiology suites have. That's right. And remember that DVT scanning is all about playing the odds. If you have a low-risk patient with a clear above-knee scan and you find a good alternative diagnosis for the symptoms, then great, you're done. However, don't mess around with the medium-risk grey zone. If your spidey sense is telling you that there's a clot somewhere and you just can't see it, then it seems reasonable to do what we've always done. You put them on some empirical anticoagulation and send them off for a formal scan. My spider sense is going crazy! I guess you have to be a bit of a risk taker, a bit like the gambler, eh? You have to know when to hold them and know when to run. That's exactly right. You've got to be like Kenny Rogers. Use your brain and know when you need more information. Awesome, Casey. Thanks so much. Esophagitis with Chris Drum. Hey there, Chris. Have you seen any cases in the last while out there in Pennsylvania that might be of interest to our listeners? I recently had one that made me think one of my gastroenterologists was really hip to this new, more prevalent diagnosis. Oh, I need to hear about this. Oh yeah, I had a 20-ish-year-old male. He was eating, and all of a sudden, he felt like he had food stuck in his esophagus, and he could not get it down. Hmm. You know, his family, they went right to the emergency room, and... As the gastroenterologist walked in, getting ready to do the endoscopy, he says, oh, you probably have EOE. I've seen a bunch of EOE recently. I need some more information. What is EOE? 
eosinophilic esophagitis. Ah, right. Now I know. I mean, I was impressed that he knew the diagnosis that quickly, which made me realize we should discuss this condition so everyone can get there right away and look very smart. Heidi, you down with EOE? Yeah, you know me. EOE, how can I explain it? I'll take it frame by frame, man. To have you all jumping, shall we sing it? E is for eosinophils. O is for that last E. Well, that's pretty simple. You down with EOE? Yeah, you know me. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. I love it. Well, for EOE, it's a new diagnosis. In the 1980s, they were finding eosinophils on esophageal biopsies. They were like, why are there eosinophils here in the esophagus? And they questioned whether or not this came from chronic GERD. Then in the 90s, they were doing studies that showing patients with these findings responded to elemental diets, which I should point out taste so bad, they're often having to be given through a G-tube. Ugh, sounds disgusting. And this led to EOE becoming its own diagnosis based on symptoms and pathologic findings. I've seen increasing numbers of this in the last decade in my practice, so I'm curious, how prevalent is this condition? The prevalence is increasing, and now there's between 25 and 50 per 100,000. There's a big variation depending on what literature you look at. Males, it's happening more to than females. And this is one of those diagnoses where the average patient is having symptoms for four to five years before diagnosis. I know we're going to get to what those symptoms are, but first, can you tell me a little bit about the pathogenesis of this mysterious condition? Well, eosinophilic esophagitis, this is a chronic disease, and it's basically an immune response to specific antigens. And the symptoms then come from these two different issues. One is esophageal dysfunction and the inflammation from the eosinophils. And this inflammation happens acutely and leads to these chronic esophageal changes. It's associated with atopic disease. And there's question as to whether or not, you know, is this due to genetics? Is this due to things we're exposed to in the environment? And we really don't know. There are some gene variations seen, but since this is a new diagnosis, they're discussing new gene markers all the time. Basically, this is an abnormal immune response to antigens, and these antigens often come from foods. And this really sucks because there's one way for food to get to your stomach unless you have a G-tube, and that is through the esophagus. Symptoms. Let's get into the symptoms here. And as I understand, these vary depending on the age. So can you walk us through the different presentations, please, Chris? Well, first, infants can have failure to thrive. And so I hope I never see this in my life. But failure to thrive in infants is one thing we're going to look out for. And with preschoolers, often decreased food intake, abdominal pain. And as we know, with children, really getting a good description of abdominal pain is difficult. So this is really kind of difficult to get a sense of. They often do say it's epigastric and vague in nature, sometimes vomiting and food refusal. What child has not refused food at one point? And then later on in life, I need to fight myself to stop (laughs) eating. True enough, true enough. And what about school-age kids? What do we see with them? Well, still, these children can have food refusal and abdominal pain, but they're often reaching for more soft foods and liquids, and sometimes you'll notice they don't want to eat solid foods. You'll often have a problem introducing new foods. And at one point, I thought that all children ate were chicken fingers, mac and cheese, pizza, and grilled cheese, which is on every child (laughs) menu everywhere. Maybe it's the cause of eosinic esophagitis. Heidi James winning the Nobel Prize for realizing that eosinophilic esophagitis is on the rise due to children's menus everywhere. (laughs) Okay, is there any other symptom that we're going to see in school-age kids? 
Yeah, school-age kids can also get abdominal pain. They can have vomiting. These children can also be slow eaters. So that's what we see in kids. How about the symptoms we see in former children, those known as grown-ups or adults? Teenagers and adolescents and adults do have somewhat similar symptoms. Abdominal pain, GERD-like symptoms, food impaction, dysphagia, and chest pain sometimes will be the presenting symptom in some adults. And this is a slow-acting disease that can get worse over time. So I'm guessing there's more to this diagnosis than noticing that my patient takes an antihistamine because they have the allergy component of the atopic triad and that they have a history of food impaction. Probably a little bit more nuanced than that, eh? You are correct. As always, let's discuss diagnostic criteria. Number one. Symptoms consistent with EOE, esophageal symptoms, which makes sense. Number two. Eosinophils in the esophagus. At this point, specifically greater than 15 eosinophils per high-powered field. And why 15? Well, the honest truth is a bunch of doctors got together and decided 15 is around the number. All right, now let's talk eosinophils in the esophagus. I was thinking we go for 14, but Trudy was thinking 16, so I'm at a loss here. Uh, hey boss, what about uh, 15? 15, huh. That's got a ring to it. Number three. I love this in all these diagnoses. Not having a different diagnosis that would otherwise cause you to have eosinophils in your esophagus. And we are going to get to the differential diagnosis, but there are not many things that cause eosinophils inside your esophagus. Biopsies should be taken in both the proximal and distal esophagus. Okay, so obviously, Chris, we know that anyone who has dysphagia should undergo endoscopy. And could you tell me a little bit more about what the gross findings are going to be on this endoscopy? Well, Heidi, you know what they found in my patient, right? I do. That piece of steak. (laughs) Once they got rid of that food bolus, what else did they note? (laughs) Oh, you mean the real medical issues? Yes. Yes, So first, you could have esophageal narrowing. And you'll say any findings consist with inflammation, fibrotic changes, stenosis. And they love to describe the longitudinal furrows or the white exudates or wall friability. And these are all some of the different things reported. And they can be anywhere from 10% to 50% seen on the different endoscopies in these patients with EOE. What are the associations with other allergic issues? Unsurprisingly, Chris, if we're talking about that allergy, that atopy combo, we're going to see a strong correlation with asthma, with food allergies, with environmental allergies, and with atopic dermatitis. So adverse immune responses to food are the main cause of this. And it can be very hard, unfortunately, to figure out what the offending food is because reactions are delayed and, interestingly, not always due to an IgE-based reaction. So we know that 50 to 60% of patients have an elevated IgE level and around half of them as well have a peripheral eosinophilia. I think one of the things I've definitely changed is when I see someone describing dysphagia, or with GERD that isn't responding, I'm diving more into taking a look at, do they have asthma? Do they have allergic rhinitis? And trying to bring that in as part of my HPI that I don't know is always there. Let's get into our differential here, Chris. What else can present similarly to eosinic esophagitis? Well, number one, GERD. GERD is obviously the biggest thing in the differential. And if you were to draw a Venn diagram, GERD and eosinophilic esophagitis do not have to be mutually exclusive. Initially, if you responded to PPIs and had GERD, they kind of ruled out EOE, but realize that now you can have both, you can have one or the other. 
And so this is definitely in the differential, but it's kind of has an asterisk next to it. Also, you can get eosinophilic gastroenteritis. This is a pretty rare condition. And the difference here is the presentation. And as you could imagine with gastroenteritis, it's abdominal pain, but more diarrhea. And in rare cases, you will find eosinophils in the stomach and in the small intestine. Also, celiac disease, vasculitis. And in the differential, one of the interesting ones is hard to tell apart is achalasia, because these may happen concurrently. A little bit of the chicken and the egg. And achalasia is damage to the nerves in the esophagus. But there are times where there have been case reports of an achalasia-type presentation that came from chronic EOE. Hypersensitivity to drugs can also uh, be in the differential, as can different infections. Okay, so lots of things to consider. We do need to treat this early and appropriately because we want to prevent esophageal stenosis and malnutrition and esophageal perforation because if you're esophagus perfs, man, you're in for an awful lot of hurt. So I think we really need to talk about treatment a little bit more, Chris. This is not a diagnosis you can die from, but it definitely affects quality of life. A chronic disease, and this needs long-term management. And for treatment here, the good thing is the AGA and the Joint Task Force on Allergy Immunology Guidelines came out in 2020. Okay, and I know this treatment is broken down into the three Ds, three distinct categories, diets, drugs, and dilation. Yes, the three Ds. Let's start with diet. So number one, the elemental diet. This is basically an amino acid-based formula. It removes all antigens. It's basically protein, fat, and carbs have been broken down into their building blocks. It has definitely been shown to be effective in children, but it's very difficult. There's issues with taste and overall nutrition. It works really well, though, is the tricky part. It's quite expensive. I went on uh, Amazon and tried to see how much it would cost me to buy enough of an elemental diet to live for a month, and it was a lot of money. So next, let's go to a diet that is not quite as terrible. And this one is basically an elimination diet. And the thought here is, here are the six most common foods. Let's eliminate these foods and re-add them back in. And no, dairy, wheat, soy, eggs, nuts, and seafood. Milk and wheat are the most common. So sometimes people start with trying to eliminate those two. So you mean to tell me that we may not be that far off with our hypothesis that the children's menu is driving this? I mean, grilled cheese, spaghetti, chicken nuggets. Like, that's an awful lot of wheat and dairy. These are thoughts. These are things that make you say. Next, elimination diets based on allergy testing. And in this case, it's not a time where we want to do the blood test for allergy testing. Hi, did you guys do much of that? We try to do mostly the skin prick, but uh, certainly is there, there are some folks who like the blood work. Yeah, so the skin prick test is, is definitely recommended as opposed to the IgE-based blood test. Also, some people do food patch testing. There are definitely issues with this, though, because this is an immune-mediated reaction to food and is not always IgE-based. So I do recommend this, and I think this can be helpful, but there are some false positives, false negatives. These patients, though, for me, I have referred them all to an allergist to at least get a sense of, are there any specific foods they're highly allergic to? Drugs. How about medication options, Chris? I understand nothing is really FDA-approved to treat EOE, but there are some medications that we do use and do provide some relief to patients. Well, so PPIs and steroids. Basically, PPIs and steroids are the main treatment here. So let's talk about PPIs. Well, I don't know that I've ever sent a patient for an endoscopy who hadn't taken at least a few days of a PPI. So PPIs are relatively safe. 
and most of these patients have already been started on them before the endoscopy. At least a third of patients respond well to PPIs. Usually they need to be twice a day, at least for a few months. And then as people tolerate, can be titrated back down to once daily. Next, topical glucocorticoids. This actually had a strong recommendation from the guidelines with moderate quality evidence. Budesonide and fluticasone are the most common. Fluticasone in children, budesonide more in adults. And these are basically sprayed or swallowed in either the inhaler form or a viscous oral suspension that then has to be swallowed. It's like the opposite of taking your inhaler. We know that candidiasis, either esophageal or oral candidiasis, is a pretty common side effect. And basically, we're going to spray into the oral cavity, and then you're trying to swallow it down into the esophagus. Okay, so that's the, that's the topical steroids. What about uh, oral ones? Do they play a role? <laughs> yes, but you know, we're always trying to avoid the oral steroid. But they definitely showed improved pathology changes. And were commented on in the guidelines is something that could be used in severe cases. There's all these other treatments that are being discussed, but I think all are not ready for prime time. The guidelines mention many different interleukin inhibitors, but only really that are being used in clinical trials. And they specifically go out of the way to mention that montelukas and sodium chromoglycate are not recommended and have not shown good improvement. Hmm, that's interesting because I would have thought montelukas might be an option. Yeah. Dilation. How should our management change if a patient mentions they're having that sensation of food getting stuck or if they've had a food impaction before? We are going to dilate that esophagus. We are going to get that thing open. This may be needed for esophageal narrowing. And this really doesn't help the inflammation, but the physical restriction it helps with. And there are some patients that go for a dilation every six months, once a year. And how often an endoscopy is needed for follow-up really depends on your level of constriction. And there's no set recommendations or guidelines as to how often this needs to be done. I think it really depends on severity and how you've responded to your treatment. And how easily you can access somebody who can dilate your esophagus. <laughs> yes. Recap. All right, Chris, it's time to summarize. Well, I think with all of these... The goal is to get you thinking of the diagnosis, right? In children with atypical GI symptoms, including food refusal, especially if they're reaching for fluids more and they're not wanting to have solid foods, definitely put this on your differential. Make sure if somebody has red flags, we've all thought of the red flags for GERD. If somebody has dysphagia, we got to send them for endoscopy. We need to make sure that we're taking a look. If somebody is not responding to PPIs, even though some of our patients with DOE will, this is another red flag that says, hey, we need to get this checked out. If a patient gets this diagnosis based on endoscopy findings, get an allergy evaluation and be aware of treatment. Make sure that you know the three Ds of treatment. Also, when it comes to diet, get a sense of the patient's diet and symptoms and give them an idea of what we can start to eliminate initially to try to immediately try to improve their symptoms and make sure we come up with a plan long-term based on what your patient's preferences are. Perfect. What a nice summary. Heidi, now that we've gone through the symptoms and issues with EOE, are you down with EOE? Yeah. yeah. You know me. Know me. Specialist's Corner. Greetings all, Vanessa Cardi here, and I'm once again joined by what we are now calling our in-house GI specialist, Dr. Chad Williams. Great to see you again, Chad. Thank you, Vanessa. I'm happy to be back on Right On Prime. I'm looking forward to the chat. 
Well, last time you were here, we were talking about IBD, and you gave us some great tips and pearls. But now you are back, and we are going to tackle a pretty common topic, the topic of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. And right off the bat, I think we need to define what exactly we mean by NAFLD. Exactly, Vanessa. So I think the nomenclature is important, and there are several acronyms that become important here as well. So non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, or NAFLD, as uh, we have uh, described it, actually encompasses two different disease processes. Number one. So the first one is non-alcoholic fatty liver, or NAFLD. And in that instance, uh, there are fatty changes to the liver, but there are actually no hepatocellular uh, injuries. There's no inflammation associated with it. But there is still a risk of progression to cirrhosis. Number two. And then the other disease is also very important, non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, or NASH. That entity is defined by hepatocellular damage in addition to uh, fatty deposition to the liver. And obviously, there's still the risk of cirrhosis with NASH as well. Okay, so let's start off with the basics, if that's okay with you. So who is at risk of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease? I think it's really important to identify these risk factors. So there are a number of important risk factors with regard to NAFLD. The first one is perhaps the most obvious, that's central obesity. And it's a really important one. But there are also other important risk factors as well. And not everybody with NAFLD has central obesity. So other risk factors include type 2 diabetes, hypertension, dyslipidemia, and the metabolic syndrome in general. These are all well-known to be independent risk factors. These medical issues are, of course, quite common in our Western society and certainly in my neck of the woods. So NAFLD is actually quite prevalent here as well. Is there anything on past medical history or clinical history and physical exam that should make us think about NAFLD in a patient? Good question. So a clinical history looking to identify individuals with those risk factors that I described is probably the most important bit. And then apart from that, identifying exactly what patients are consuming. So a proper dietary history is really, really key as well. Specifically identifying those individuals who may be taking in excessive calories or diets that are really high in saturated fats are also quite important. It's important though to note that the majority of individuals with NAFLD are completely asymptomatic. They don't have any symptoms. Some patients may complain of fatigue, but that could be put on to other uh, disease states that they have as well. Likewise, with regard to physical exam, in the absence of cirrhosis, of course, the physical exam may not reveal any abnormalities other than obesity or hepatomegaly. And what are some of the common signs and symptoms of NAFLD? So again, NAFLD is usually a silent disease, but not always. Most individuals affected don't have any symptoms or clinical signs of the disease. Often patients are brought to medical attention due to abnormal liver enzymes, and those blood tests may be done for any number of reasons. Oftentimes, they're part of a routine analysis for insurance workup and things like these. So that's why it's really, really important to identify folks with the risk factors as opposed to hunting for specific clinical signs or symptoms, because the vast majority of individuals with NAFLD don't have those signs or symptoms. Okay, that's a great pearl. Now, if we suspect it, is there anything else that we need to rule out first? Like, so what is the differential of NAFLD? This is really key, and uh, thanks for asking that. So I think the first thing, the most important thing when ruling out non-alcoholic fatty liver disease is to rule out alcoholic fatty liver disease. So we need to make sure that these individuals who are assessing aren't consuming excessive amounts of alcohol. Now, excessive is subjective, and indeed, when we look at different societies, liver societies, their definition of what excessive uh, consumption of alcohol varies quite widely. But 
I think it's important to make sure that individuals, patients aren't consuming excessive amounts of alcohol when we're making a diagnosis of NAFLD. This may be quite apparent on patient social history. I find more and more patients are quite forthcoming with that information as long as it's asked in a, an unpresuming way, a non-judgmental way. Other important things to think about with regard to differential diagnoses would be medications that may cause fatty liver deposition, fatty liver disease associated with pregnancy, which is often thought about because those individuals are pregnant, starvation. Uh, so sometimes in our patient population, the homeless or those who don't have access, you know, food security is a major issue nowadays. So starvation can actually manifest with fatty liver deposition as well. So that's important to rule out. And then, of course, there are the special chronic liver diseases that need to be ruled out, including the viral hepatitis like hepatitis C and hepatitis B. I don't mention hepatitis A in the same sentence just because it's not a chronic liver disease. But hemochromatosis, autoimmune hepatitis, and celiac disease as well needs to be considered. Celiac disease is quite common and can manifest with elevated liver enzymes. Okay, that's a great list and sort of a manageable list too. I think a lot of us can get our head around that and it's not six pages of things that we have to worry about. But that's a great pearl too about the starvation um, because as you say, food insecurity is an ever-increasing problem. So if we see a patient and you know we're concerned about possible of NAFLD and we want to start the workup, what is our next step? Right, so the diagnosis of NAFLD requires that four criteria really be met. One. So the first would be documentation of hepatic steatosis or fat in the liver. And that diagnosis can be made either on imaging, which is the more common form of diagnosis, or even on liver biopsy. Sometimes liver biopsy is still required to make a clear diagnosis. Two. The second criteria would be ruling out alcohol as a cause. So we talked about that just a moment ago. Three. And then ruling out other chronic liver diseases. Four. And then the fourth thing would be excluding other causes of hepatic steatosis that aren't due to chronic liver diseases, such as starvation, pregnancy, medications. And then, once NAFLD is suspected, I recommend assessing uh, both the serum liver enzymes, so those would be the ALT, AST, alkaline phosphatase, GGT, if you have the ability to check that. Some institutions don't measure GGT regularly anymore. And also checking liver function tests, including the INR, total bilirubin, and albumin. Liver enzymes are often elevated in NAFLD, but not always. And that's important to identify. Sometimes uh, folks will uh, presume that because the liver enzymes are normal, then NAFLD can't be at play, and that's not necessarily true. Abdominal imaging is very useful, and abdominal ultrasound, abdominal CT scan, and MRI are all capable of identifying fatty liver deposition in individuals with NAFLD. But again, they're not perfect. So liver biopsy remains the gold standard for diagnosis. Okay. Fiber scans. Now, there's a term that's come up in the last, I don't know, maybe 10 years, maybe it's a little less or a little more, but the term is fiber scans. And I feel like these are all the rage right now. And can you explain what they are, how they work, and how we should be ordering them? Right. So fiber scans are a great technology. And I think we have to be careful about how we utilize them, though, especially in the context of NAFLD. So to start, fiber scans are a form of ultrasound technology that use a special shear ultrasound wave to assess how elastic or the elastography of the liver tissue. And it's become more popular because it represents obviously a non-invasive modality to assess for liver fibrosis, and that's very important. It often means that we don't need to do liver biopsy in some of these patients. This tool, though, is most useful in other forms of chronic liver disease, such as assessment of individuals who have hepatitis C a viral infection. The test actually has a poorer performance in individuals with NAFLD for a number of reasons, but a couple of those reasons include, 
the fact that oftentimes the patients are obese. So imaging and transmission of that shear wave through to the liver is more problematic. And then the other issue is that fatty liver deposition itself gives inaccurate readings when it comes to uh, checking for elastography. So I don't necessarily think that uh, fibro scans are the first thing that I would recommend outside of the hepatologist's hands for uh, assessment of NAFLD. I do not advise the routine use of fibro scan in NAFLD. A better test, though, uh, albeit less cool, is something called the FIB4. So that's an acronym, capital F, capital I, capital B, 4, calculation. It's cheap, it's relatively easy to use, and especially with today's nifty gadgets, it's uh, really handy because there are often calculators available online and uh, smartphone apps that will calculate it for you in a number of a couple of seconds. The calculation actually takes into account patient age, platelet count, AST, and ALT. And a low result, so a number of less than 1.45, actually has a very high negative predictive value for a patient going on to have significant fibrosis. So low results are better, and those folks we worry about a lot less. In patients who have higher numbers, my recommendation really would be that those folks should be referred on to hepatology to be further considered for additional workup, which may actually include liver biopsy. That sounds great because in a lot of places it's hard to get access to a lot of these imaging tests, this would be great if it's something that I can actually do on my smartphone, at least to sort of triage people right off the bat. Exactly. Okay, so now let's say we have the results and let's say that everything points towards the diagnosis of NAFLD. What happens next? Can a GP give the diagnosis and manage initially from there or should we be referring straight away? Yes, so absolutely. A GP can make and give the diagnosis to the patient. I think that's the best thing to do if the criteria that I described are met. And if, for instance, you've gone the extra step and done the FIB4 calculation and it's quite low, then I think by all means, let the patient know that they have non-alcoholic fatty liver disease and that you know there are certain therapeutic options that are available to them that we should be doing. If there's any concern or question around that, then I would strongly recommend getting gastroenterologist or if you have uh, access to hepatology involved, because there are situations that aren't quite so straightforward. Individuals can certainly have NAFLD and other liver diseases, and that can be obviously more complex. Right. So for the straightforward ones, we can keep them in our wheelhouse, at least initially until things get more complicated. But then if there's any doubt about the diagnosis or comorbidities, then we reach out to you guys and uh, bring you into the team. Right. And I will say, I think, I think it's just better that way when we think about the volume of individuals that we have with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. So just from a resource standpoint, it's quite a, you know, a straightforward diagnosis to make. And I think it's really well within the wheelhouse of uh, the general practitioner to make that and to at least start initial therapies. Now, speaking of therapeutic options that you mentioned, are there any sort of tips and tricks you can give to us about how to care for these patients? What are some of the therapeutic options? What do we need to get them to do? Yes. Well, unfortunately, I, I wish I did have some tricks. I don't <laughs> have any tricks per se. The mainstay of therapy is really lifestyle modification for the vast majority of these individuals with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. The focus, at least initially, is on weight loss. And that weight loss, we should emphasize, needs to be gradual. There are important complications that can happen when individuals lose weight too quickly. And in fact, sometimes it can exacerbate their non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. So gradual weight loss is key. And that may hinge on improved dietary options, with reasonable daily caloric intake and just more safe and particular choices of foods. And then mild to moderate physical activity is always advised. I strongly recommend involving a skilled dietitian whenever a diagnosis of NAFLD is made. I think that that can be very useful 
in helping individuals with NAFLD understand better the importance of diet and weight loss in these lifestyle changes. And it really helps them to better understand what they're already doing and what they need to do in order to meet their goals. Unfortunately, there are currently no medical therapies specifically indicated for non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. But I do recommend, obviously, optimizing medical management of those individuals who have these risk factors. So if they have diabetes, for instance, or dyslipidemia, just making sure that their medical therapy for those diseases are appropriately and optimally managed. There is a lot of research going on with regard to non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, and some of the therapies that we already utilize for diabetes have shown to be independently useful in the management of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, even in the absence of diabetes. But that isn't something that I would recommend the primary care practitioner take up just yet. Again, that would be more in the realm of hepatology to make decisions on for now. So assuming we've told the patients that they have NAFLD and you know there's no sort of alarming features that we don't need to send them on to see you or some of your hepatology colleagues, and we've done all the sort of healthy lifestyle advice and we're working on their modifications of diet and exercise with our patients. Are there tests that we need to do sort of on an annual basis, sort of like not screening because we know they already have the disease, but sort of monitoring of the disease? Do we do that FIB4 calculator every year or is that just a one-off? That's a great question. So the, the FIB4 has been utilized in at baseline to define whether individuals are at significant risk of going on to develop fibrosis in the future. But I would recommend that it would still be useful for follow-up at, say, four to six months' uh, time. Perhaps more useful, though, would be just reassessment of those liver enzymes if they were elevated at baseline and patient goes on to do some important lifestyle modifications. And then at six months, having a look to see if those liver enzymes have improved, that can be reassuring. Abdominal imaging reassessment uh, following lifestyle modifications, the same. Although I don't think I would necessarily do it at the three to you know, six month mark, perhaps at a year, just to see if there's been significant improvement. I think that would be reasonable. Obviously, uh, checking in with the patient more often just on a clinical basis to see how they're doing and uh, perhaps making sure also that they're checking in with uh, their dietitian to make uh, sure that they're staying the course. The one exception to that, I think I would mention, is in individuals who actually have cirrhosis. So we haven't really been talking about cirrhosis, and that's not the topic of this session. But in those individuals, we certainly would recommend more frequent intra-abdominal uh, ultrasounds or even CT scans, usually abdominal ultrasounds, just to make sure that they're not uh, developing any complications with the, of their cirrhosis. But at the same time, those individuals should certainly be followed by hepatology more closely. Okay. Awesome. Now, is there anything else that you want us to know, either before we refer the patient to you or after the diagnosis has been made? I just really want to emphasize the importance of identifying those at risk for non-alcoholic fatty liver disease and the importance of completing the baseline workup early on to confirm the diagnosis. Off the top of your uh, segment, you, you mentioned that how important it is to you to have information available and uh, completed prior to involving a specialist. And I think that's really, really key. And in this instance, with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, Often amassing that information and putting everything into context, often that means that they don't actually need to go on to see a subspecialist, at least not at that particular point in time. And then the only other thing I would mention is certainly non-alcoholic fatty liver disease is the most common liver disease in our part of the world. And it is a significant cause of chronic liver disease and cirrhosis. Some uh, researchers have postulated that it's already overtaken viral hepatitis with regard to the most uh, common cause of cirrhosis and it soon will uh, certainly eclipse those. So we really need to pay close attention to it and uh, manage it appropriately. 
Well, thank you so much for all those uh, tips and tricks. You said you didn't have any tips and tricks, but the FIB4 calculator sounds like one to me, and I'm excited to use it. So thank you for that. You've empowered us, and um, hopefully you'll join us again another time so we can pick your brain some more. This was great fun. Thank you so much for inviting me. Awesome. Thanks, Chad. Today I found out that Charles Osborne, 1894 to 1991, had the hiccups non-stop for approximately 68 years, from 1922 to June 5th, 1990. According to the Guinness Book of World Records, this is the longest bout of hiccups ever recorded. His hiccups started in 1922 while weighing a hog for slaughter. He says, I was hanging a 350-pound hog for butchering. I picked it up, then I fell down. I felt nothing. But the doctor later said that I burst a blood vessel the size of a pin in my brain. The result being that he damaged a small part of his brain that inhibits the hiccup response, according to Dr. Terence Anthony, who treated Osborne later in life. In the beginning, Osborne's hiccups occurred at a rate of around 40 per minute. Throughout his life, he gradually slowed to about 20 hiccups per minute until he finally stopped mysteriously one day before his death in 1991. It is estimated that he hiccuped over 430 million times in his lifetime. <laughs> Eventually, he learned to suppress most of the noise of a typical hiccup by breathing methodically between hiccups, which was a technique taught to him by doctors at the Mayo Clinic. The fact is, he kept his sanity, and this is amazing enough, but apparently he led a pretty normal life. He married twice over his long life, he lived to the ripe age of 97, and the second wife marrying him despite the hiccups. He did not have the hiccups when he was first married. He also fathered eight children. Later in life, he was forced to start grinding any food he ate into a blender due to the fact that it was hard for the food to reach his stomach between hiccups. Total number of years of his life, he had the hiccups, was 68. The total without hiccups, 29 years, divided between his first 29 years of life and his last. Bonus facts. Another dramatic case of hiccups occurred in 2006, with a man named Christopher Sands, who lived in Lincolnshire, England. Sands' hiccups lasted around three years, and robbed him of his career as a musician and vocalist. His hiccups were so bad at times, he would be unable to breathe properly and would occasionally pass out from it. Sands eventually received media attention in 2009 and doctors of the United States investigated that he had tumour of his brainstem that was causing the hiccups. After removing it, the hiccups went away. In 2007, Jennifer Mee of Florida hiccuped 50 times per minute for around 35 days straight before the hiccups went away. The same girl was later arrested for murder in 2010 after taking part in a robbery. The English word for hiccup, acervgorfia, derives from the fact that it was thought that hiccups were caused by elves. <laughs> the word hiccup is itself an anomatopoeia that first appeared in the 18th century, although as early as the 16th century it was being called the hiccup or hiccet. The technical name for hiccup is a synchronous diaphragmatic flutter, SDF or singultus. Singultus derives from the Latin singult, which means the act of catching one's breath. And I read this all from a website that's entitled Today I Found Out. And I have absolutely no idea if any of it is true. Ah, okay. Uh, but for this conversation, that doesn't matter. It's just interesting. Although I should say the part about the Guinness Book of World Records, uh, that is true. <laughs> well, that was quite the introduction, right? So we are talking about, yes, you guessed it, hiccups. Hiccups are basically a ubiquitous phenomenon. Everybody in the world at some point is going to get hiccups. It's just the way it is. And hiccups is defined as that involuntary spasm of the diaphragm and the intercostals. Uh, you know what it is, right? And by the time the person comes and sees you, though, 
they have uh, usually had this for a fair while because people just do not come to see healthcare professionals because they've got some hiccups, right? That would be a little crazy. So the people that you're going to see is somebody who's had this for a while and it's not going away with the usual things that they might try at home. For example, uh, breathing into a paper bag, gargling, holding your breath, sipping ice cold water, inducing gag reflex, a spoonful of sugar to help the medicine go down. Everybody's got their trick. Everybody believes that theirs is the best. But actually, I think that trying to induce some form of gag reflex is pretty good. But uh, sometimes it doesn't work and they have uh, persistent or intractable hiccups. So persistent hiccups are those that have been going for more than 48 hours. And intractable hiccups, more than a month. So when these patients come to you, it's usually because they've got persistent hiccups. They've got them for a day or two and it's driving them crazy and they can't sleep. And please help me, please help me. Well, when you see this person, this is actually a time to do a very thorough history and physical. Because most of the time, it's actually not going to be anything. You're not going to find a cause and you're just going to try some medication therapy to try and make them go away. But we have to understand that although most people don't have anything, anything that we can find that's causing the hiccups, there is certainly pathology that can produce hiccups. And basically, anything that is near your diaphragm, your esophagus, your stomach, along your phrenic nerve, anything in your belly, any in your brain, there's just the list of possible causes of hiccups are kind of overwhelming. So you've got to do a good history and physical exam and look for masses and look for signs of stroke and look for all these things. Some of the red flags that might make you more concerned is hiccups during sleep, new weight loss, night sweats, new mass, of course, pain, lymphadenopathy, shortness of breath, early satiety, if they're getting full really easily when they eat, and syncope. In fact, if they're having syncope and hiccups, they probably need to be inpatient evaluated for that syncope. Now, there's no accepted algorithm for workup in these cases. If you look at all of the different textbooks, if you look at all of the review articles and the stuff written on this, there is no single algorithm because the potential causes are huge. You just have to go with your gut. You have to do a good history and physical and let that guide you. But it might include something like an EKG to look for pericarditis or MI, a chemistry panel to screen for sort of like renal disease, a chest x-ray perhaps to look for masses or things that might be tickling that diaphragm. And maybe something like a CBC to look for things like chronic anemia, which might suggest some other cancer, for example. And so after you do a thorough history and physical, and maybe you did some of these labs and you can't find any red flags, then it is reasonable to give a trial of medication. If you also try the things that they tried as an outpatient, you try them in your office, in your urgent care, in your ear, wherever you are, and it doesn't work, then you might try medications. Now, again, here, the literature is not great. I found a Cochrane review. I found a 2017 review, I found another review in 2015, a systematic review of medications, and the number of medications that have been looked at for uh, persistent hiccups is enormous. Just about anything you can think of has been tried. But the problem with the literature is that these are often not placebo-controlled, and they're just small case series that say, we tried this drug and it worked. It appears, though, if you go through the Cochrane Review and these other systematic reviews, that the evidence is best for things like metoclopramide, 10 milligrams, Q8 hours for up to three days. Buclofen, 5 milligrams every eight hours for about three days, and then you can go up to 10 milligrams for about three days and then taper to zero. And then gabapentin is another 100 milligrams a day for three days and then up to 400 milligrams for three days. 
All of these drugs have side effects. There are many other drugs that people have tried, like Haldol and calcium channel blockers. Like, it's just everything has been tried for this. But those three are probably the top three. So when you see these patients, you should reassure them that the vast majority of people are going to get better. That's assuming they don't have any red flags that you're concerned about. They're going to get better. That these medications do appear to significantly improve the speed with which these will resolve. But if that person keeps getting them over and over again, that may also be a group of patients that you might want to do further workup in. And I'm talking here something like a chest and belly CT, wherever you can get that done. So it's kind of difficult. We all know. Hiccups, really common. Everybody's going to get them. And the vast majority of people who have them don't have anything bad. But every now and then, they do. So make sure you do a good history physical exam. Try out one of these medications and get them good follow-up, just in case this is that person who's uh, presenting with a tumor or something bad as hiccups. And hopefully, hopefully, they won't have them for 68 years. <laughs>
no foul taste in his mouth. He wasn't burping a lot. He said he felt like his stomach was bloating on and off, but he'd had no change in weight that he'd noticed. And he'd had no cardiac or respiratory symptoms. He hadn't traveled outside the boreal forest regions of northern Quebec. He had no COVID contacts. As I mentioned before, he's a diabetic, but he was compliant with his diabetic medications, namely metformin and long-acting insulin, and he didn't take any other meds. He had never smoked cigarettes, but he did used to smoke marijuana, but even that he hadn't done for the last 10 or so years. And, as far as he knew, he didn't have any significant family history of anything apart from diabetes. He said he was wondering if he had H. pylori or maybe if he had celiac disease. He'd been doing some research online. H. pylori was certainly on my differential, but so were parasitic infections. There have been cases of Giardia up where I work and, of course, other waterborne parasites, so given the spring water connection, I knew I was probably going to be looking further into that. In terms of celiac, I was less concerned as the pattern didn't seem to fit, but at this point I wasn't ruling anything out. As he was climbing onto the examining table, and as I was doing the head and neck, cardiovascular and respiratory exam, I was kind of running through the other elements on my differential. I was of course worried about a cancer, because anytime anyone says they have weird upper abdominal pain, I kind of always worry about cancer. But I have to be honest, it wasn't high up on the list. He had no red flag symptoms, he looked hale and hearty, and the six months between symptoms flare, it just didn't really fit, and it was all kind of leading me away from that. But it was still there in the back of my mind. I thought maybe he had some referred pain from perhaps renal stones, or maybe a pyelonephritis. It's pretty unusual to have anterior pain with a pylo, but it's not unheard of. In any case, at that point he lay down on the examining table, and my hands went straight to his right upper quadrant. Felt nice and soft, same with the right lower quadrant and left lower quadrant. But coming up to the umbilicus and epigastrium and left upper quadrant, it was really quite firm. There was no rebound or guarding, but I definitely felt something that should not be there. I was trying to get a sense of the dimensions of this, so then I percussed it and found a pretty large mass in the left upper quadrant to epigastrium right down to the umbilicus. So now my mind was refocusing. Was this a massive gastric mass? Was it the spleen? His liver felt fine, but maybe he just had isolated splenomegaly. I rested the bell of my stethoscope onto the top of his abdomen while I was putting the earpieces into my ears. And that's when I noticed that my stethoscope was moving. Wait, 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 it's moving? Next you're gonna tell me you see dead people. It was pulsing, clearly and consistently pulsing. I quickly listened, and I couldn't hear any bowel sounds or bruies. And after that, I placed my hands on his mid-abdomen and left them there. And I felt the pulsation. And I also noticed him wince and kind of say, Ugh. I slowly moved my hands further and further apart until they were at least 10 centimeters apart. And I can tell you that now in my mind, I was also going, Ugh. At this point, it felt like things kind of slowed down, but apparently my feet sped up because I rushed to get the Polkus machine and brought it back into the exam room. I decided I should do this properly and do it, you know, as we teach our students and residents and do things systematically. So I started in the right upper quadrant and got a good view of the kidney and Morrison's pouch because I always start in the right upper quadrant. And then I went over to the left upper quadrant and got a so-so view of the kidney on that side. But to be honest, my heart was no longer really in it at this point. My brain was already focused in on the epigastrium. So I loaded the probe up with gel and placed it on the epigastrium. And what did I see? Wait, 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 I got this. Uh, Sasquatch? I saw black. A whole lot of black. A huge black hypoechoic mass or lesion or something. Really, all my mind was seeing was black. 
and I couldn't see anything behind it, like posterior towards the spine, and I couldn't really see much of anything else at all because there was so much black. I moved the probe down towards the umbilicus and the mass stayed. It did get a little smaller and kind of moved a bit off to the patient's left, but it was still there. I excused myself and ran to get my colleague, Katrina Gong. She has more experience with ultrasound than I do, so I figured I would get a second set of eyes on the scan. She came and scanned and saw the same thing. And then she was really smart because she put the probe down to the bottom of his abdomen and moved it upwards in a stepwise fashion until she saw the bifurcation of the aorta. This really helped ground us all as to what we were seeing, and for a few centimeters above the bifurcation, we were able to follow what looked like a normal aorta. This was really great because it gave us a sense of, okay, this is where things should be. Now let's see where they diverge. However, that's when the images grew harder to interpret, and at one point it looked like there might be kind of a communication between the aorta and the big black mass. I must admit I was also fairly distracted by the visible pulsations of the ultrasound probe, but there was definitely a few places where it looked like there could be a communication. There didn't seem to be any active blood flow in the big black mass, but there was definitely some thicker material in there that looked alarmingly like the patterns you might see in an aneurysm. Some slightly hyperechoic materials kind of hugging the side and posterior aspect of the vessel. So we looked at each other with pretty wide eyes and excused ourselves pretty quickly. And speaking of quickly, the next part went very quickly. I called Montreal and it was a pretty easy sell for the accepting physician there. A pulsatile abdominal mass certainly got his attention, but the rest of the process also went totally seamlessly. In fact, it was possibly the fastest medevac that has ever taken place since I started working up there. And that was purely due to luck. In fact, it was so seamless that I began to fear that it was too perfect and that clearly some massive wrench in the works was gonna come along at any moment because this was just going too smoothly. We have a system in Quebec that's called EVAC, and we refer to it as the Challenger. Um, basically, it's an ICU plane that's run by the Quebec government and goes around to a lot of the remote northern communities to pick very ill patients up. And this Challenger plane happened to be heading to Montreal from further north than where we were and could stop at an airport about an hour and a half away from us in order to pick up our patient. And they were going to be there in two hours. This has literally never happened that I've gotten a medevac that quickly. And the next plane that could come wasn't going to be there for at least another four hours. So we obviously jumped at this opportunity. We scrambled a team for the ambulance and the nurse and I hopped into the back of the ambulance with the patient, a huge cooler with two units of blood and the patient's suitcase. Unfortunately, we forgot his boots, but we did have the blood. They strapped him in and I must say that I kind of winced a little bit as they really cinched that patient belt over his epigastrium, but we got on our way. Now, when we left, I didn't even have the results of any of the labs except for the gas that I had ordered before we got into the ambulance. After about 20 minutes of driving on the very bumpy road, though, we got a call just before losing self-service, and it said that all of his labs were totally normal except for hemoglobin of 115, or 11.5. So this was very reassuring that this didn't look like the blood panel of someone with advanced cancer or splenic sequestration. But it was also kind of concerning because it didn't give me another clear diagnosis for this pulsatile mass. His vitals stayed rock solid during the one and a half hour drive, but his abdominal pain started to recur and he was becoming more nauseated. Now this could certainly be attributed to being strapped to a stretcher in the back of an ambulance that's basically built like a metal box on square wheels. Seriously, I don't know why they don't have suspension systems in ambulances. But he responded very well to a small dose of morphine IV and 4 milligrams of Vendansetron. We had a maintenance IV running at a fairly low rate, as his pressure was beautiful and I didn't want to raise his pressure if that was a vascular lesion. And we made it to the other airport safe and sound. 
Cardi, I can't tell you just how disappointed I'm going to be if this is smooth sailing the whole way. Somebody better have a terrifying experience or <laughs> I'm off the project. The accepting doctor on the EVAC plane was fantastic. And I hear I have to give my thanks to Dr. Charles-Étienne Ploult, who was the doctor on the plane that day. He listened to my rather disorganized description of the mass that I had seen. I kept saying in my somewhat mangled French, is it possible to have a sort of aortic diverticula that's 10 centimeters by 10 centimeters at least? He looked at me a bit quizzically, but he was calm and took it all in stride and got us off the plane quickly so they could get the patient with the pulsatile abdominal mass off the ground and headed towards Montreal. So within a few hours, we were back in Chisassabee, and not long after, we were able to check in on some of the bloods that had been drawn in Montreal. We saw that his hemoglobin was still the same and that everything else looked good. But there was no scan shown on his list of interventions in the emergency room in Montreal. This, of course, set my mind racing. Was there no scan because he decompensated in the emergency room? Or because the POCUS showed that I was nuts? Or because they had gone straight to the OR because he had a ruptured AAA? All of these thoughts kept racing through my head all night long. So after a fairly sleepless night, the next morning a colleague was able to find out that the patient had indeed had an angioscan. And the result was, well, it was not what I was expecting. So now's the time where you have to try and guess what it was. What was it? Was it a rupturing AAA? Was it a small marsupial? Come on, what do you think this could be? Yes, that's right. Normal stomach, good. Normal spleen, good. Normal aorta, very good. But he had a 17 centimeter by 17 centimeter by 12 centimeter pancreatic pseudocyst. I knew it. I knew it all along. So I guess the pulsations we felt were the aortic pulsations transmitted through the fluid-filled cyst as a sort of fluid wave. Now, apparently, these pancreatic pseudocysts can rupture when they reach such alarming sizes, and it's often fatal when that happens. So obviously, it's great that he came in to seek medical attention, but it really does scare me when I think back about how easily this could have been missed. If he hadn't had the idea to come in that day, he wasn't actually having any pain when I saw him. But he just wanted to have it checked out because this pain had happened twice. He had no history of pancreatitis. He had no other clear signs of pancreatitis. His lipase was normal. It was all very misleading, misleading us away from the massive hypoechoic lesion in his abdomen. So I'm very relieved that he came in. I'm very relieved that the spring water, whether it caused a mild pancreatitis and gave him the pain, or whether it was a total red herring, that he associated with something that was wrong and came to get help. But this case reminded me of a few key issues. First off, remember to go back to the basic principles when doing ultrasound. Next time, if I'm worried about a pulsatile abdominal mass, I'll start with the aorta and won't pretend that I'm going to do right upper quadrant, left upper quadrant, suprapubic, and then aorta. Because, you know, as long as you're consistent, you're going to get the things you need to get. One thing that my colleague Katrina Gong did so well is that she went below the umbilicus and looked for the bifurcation when she couldn't see anything of the aorta further up. And that was a really good reminder. Try and get something to ground yourself on and then go from there. She was able to establish that there was a normal size aorta, at least somewhere near the bifurcation. And so that helped alleviate some of our anxiety that this wasn't a AAA about to burst. I mean, it was still an undifferentiated pulsatile abdominal mass and they had to be medevaced, but definitely it provided a smidge of reassurance. Another lesson learned was being reminded of how helpful it is when communication between colleagues is cordial. The doctor in Montreal, who I called at the emergency room, went above and beyond to accept the patient and even worked to clarify 
to which emergency room within Montreal the patient should go to to make sure a vascular surgeon was there and ready to go in cases was a AAA. And the physician on the plane, Dr. Plould, was kind and open and helped diffuse any stress that we were feeling. And he even emailed me a few days later to follow up and see how things were going and if we had any news. The patient was really lucky to be cared for by such a great team spread out all over the province. And a final lesson. Even though this turned out to be a pancreatic pseudocyst and was probably not related, I am never drinking that spring water. Excellent case. Interesting case. Not every one of Cardi's cases result in somebody flaming out and dying on a helicopter or plane or a boat. But this is very important to remember that not all things that are pulsatile in the abdomen are a triple A, but that is your default diagnosis. Yes, if you've got a pulsatile thing in the belly, it's triple A until proven otherwise. This is just a reminder that things sort of attached to or over the top of can then transmit that force. But that's okay, because until proven otherwise, you're going to think this is triple A. And I also will not drink spring water because I know that there's all types of poopy stuff in there. Yeah, I'm looking at you, Beavis. Feel the effects of nature. Cleanse your body. Fresh from the mountain springs, the all-natural Giardia. Taste the difference. Oh yeah. That's right. Chicka, 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 chicka. Primary Care Medical Abstracts. With Ken and Steve. Great to be back for another episode of PCMA. This is the September 2022 episode. I'm Ken Milne and joining me, Steve Brown. So happy to be here, Ken. Thank you. We're here to hand select 10 high quality papers or a high quality topic for the PCMA audience. So we have 10 abstracts to go through and I'm starting with number one. Paper one. Abstract number one is Screening for Atrial Fibrillation, U.S. Preventative Service Task Force Recommendation Statement in JAMA 2022. So we're starting off with one of our favorite resources, none other than the Task Force. So this is an update that the Task Force put out on the recommendations on screening for atrial fibrillation. And that word screening is so important. These are asymptomatic people to see if they have atrial fibrillation. And it's an update on their 2018 recommendation, and that was based on a systematic review meta-analysis. So they included a population of adults defined as those 50 years of age and older without a diagnosis or symptoms of atrial fibrillation, and they couldn't have a history of TIA, so transient ischemic attacks, or have a previous stroke. And the question they were trying to answer is, what are the potential benefits and the potential harms with screening this population for atrial fibrillation? So this was based on the diagnostic accuracy. So can we accurately identify these patients with a screening test? And then the impact of once these patients are identified, they're going to get anticoagulated in many instances. And so what's the impact of anticoagulating these people for preventing badness, but also the potential harm? So the evidence to detect atrial fibrillation came from your standard, I don't know, I just took their pulse, using an uh, automated blood pressure cuff. 
They used ECGs, pulse oximetry, but I thought this was interesting also. They also included smartwatches, which a lot of people have, and even smartphone apps, which many people have. The long and the short of it is the task force came up with a I recommendation, and that I, from the task force standpoint, stands for insufficient evidence. From a Ken Milne standpoint, it stands for, eh, I don't know. So they don't have enough evidence. It's insufficient to assess the potential benefits and potential harms of screening asymptomatic adult patients 50 years of age or older for AF. And Steve, I think this is really unfortunate that we don't have enough information to make a recommendation on screening for what is the most common cardiac arrhythmia. You think we would have enough evidence to at least to make a recommendation one way or the other. We do know that, you know, the older the patient, the more likely they will be to develop atrial fibrillation. But we don't know if race or ethnicity has any significant impact on the prevalence of disease. However, we do know that atrial fibrillation is associated with a significant increase in the risk of stroke. We are ultimately left with being uncertain about whether the potential benefits of identifying asymptomatic patients and then treating them with anticoagulation to prevent a TIA or stroke outweighs the potential harms of bleeding associated with being anticoagulated. So this, this task force of I recommendation of insufficient evidence, it's different than the recommendation that came out of the American Heart Association and the American Stroke Association. These two organizations support screening for atrial fibrillation in the primary care setting in patients older than 65 years of age. So they started a little older and they say just assess them by taking their pulse and then follow up with an ECG if necessary. Now, in contrast, though, the American Academy of Family Physicians currently agrees with the previous 2018 task force recommendation of insufficient information. So, Steve, where do you fall on this? Are you in the, eh, I don't know, camp? Yeah, I think it's really interesting. I think one of the things that's really interesting is how quickly they updated this. So usually it'll be five, seven years or more, or sometimes they won't even update them if there's no new evidence. In this case, my guess is because of all the smart watches, and we've talked about some of these studies here on PCMA, there is an increasing sort of fervor to screen for atrial fibrillation. So the USPSDF does a comments period, and then they comment on the comments in the document. Some of the comments were, why did you lower the age to 50 when you should be looking at 65 or more? That could be, quote, unquote, diluting it. And they said, no, it's not. You know, we would have commented if 65 or over was was truly beneficial. So maybe there's a role in patients over 65. I don't think there's any harm in checking a pulse. The other organizations are not suggesting that you should do an EKG, although it's very interesting that the U.S. Medicare recommends an ECG for a wellness exam, which is also not recommended, for example, by like the Choosing Wisely campaign. And it comes down to that we don't have data on harms and we don't have trials that report on the benefits of anticoagulation therapy in screen detected populations. And then just to reemphasize your point, Ken, that if someone has symptoms or is like, hey, something's weird about my pulse, then this is not what that's applying to. You should work that up you should evaluate that. And clearly something like atrial fibrillation is something that we have a treatment for that can prevent further 
progression of disease. Absolutely. That's a great point because if somebody's coming to the office saying, hey, I'm, I'm feeling pounding in my chest, I've got palpitations, I'm feeling lightheaded, all of those types of things, that is not an asymptomatic person by definition. Or even worse, if they've had a TIA or identified as having a stroke, one of the, one of the things we do is obviously in that workup of a TIA or stroke is get an ECG to see if they have atrial fibrillation and that is the cause of that stroke. So excellent point to talk about. These are asymptomatic patients and that's what we don't know. Bottom line. There is not enough evidence to recommend for or against screening asymptomatic adult patients of at least 50 years of age for atrial fibrillation currently. Paper two. Okay, abstract number two, the treatment for mild chronic hypertension during pregnancy, New England Journal of Medicine 2022. We know that chronic hypertension is common in pregnancy and associated with preeclampsia and other adverse pregnancy outcomes. And apparently, I didn't realize this, there's actually some disagreement amongst different guidelines about treating hypertension in pregnant people with a blood pressure less than 160 over 100 which is most of the patients in pregnancy with chronic hypertension. Now, just real clear here, we're talking about chronic hypertension. We're not talking about blood pressure that becomes elevated once the patient is pregnant. So they wanted to look at whether we should treat this hypertension. So the authors performed an open-label, multi-center trial. They randomized pregnant women with mild chronic hypertension, one baby, gestational age of less than 23 weeks, to receive either antihypertensive medications that were recommended for use in pregnancy, that's the active treatment group, or no treatment unless the hypertension got severe, which is systolic blood pressure over 160 or diastolic over 105. The primary composite outcome was preeclampsia with severe features, medically indicated preterm birth at less than 35 weeks gestation, placental abruption, or fetal or neonatal death. They also looked at a safety outcome, which was small for gestational age birth weight or below the 10th percentile for gestational age. And they had a secondary composite outcomes, also serious neonatal or maternal complications, preeclampsia, and preterm birth. They had over 2,400 women enrolled in the trial from 70 sites. The average age was 32. So this is fairly representative of the patients that have chronic hypertension in the United States. The active treatment group received labetalol, 62% of them, or nifedipine, 36%, which are the medications that are recommended for pregnancy and chronic hypertension. So what were the results? The primary composite outcome, 30% in the treated group, 37% in the untreated group, number needed to treat 14, that was statistically significant. We talked about how that was a composite outcome. Most of that result came from preeclampsia with severe features, which was also clinically significant. Small for gestational age was not significant. Serious maternal complications, severe neonatal complications, those were not statistically significant. And also a secondary outcome, any preeclampsia prevention was also effective. 31% versus 24% number needed to treat is 15 So this is a pretty well-done, open-label, randomized controlled trial addressing a really important topic for a patient population that often doesn't get enough research effort conducted on their behalf. 
Yeah, it certainly is a really good question to ask, but I, I really don't understand why they couldn't have blinded it. You know, this lack of blinding, having an open label really is a big limitation because that could have introduced bias into the actual study. And then did you notice that they had to screen a 12 to 1 ratio for every one person that they got in, 12 people were not included in the study. So there was a lot of screening and very few were actually included or eligible. Now, the authors do try to address this saying, yeah, the populations are similar, but that 12 to 1 ratio is a bit of a red flag for me. And then you already mentioned that, you know, this is a composite outcome. So, you know, I have difficulty with that. And even though the composite outcome had a number needed to treat of 15, that composite outcome can be an end run around the primary outcome of only one. And it was driven by preeclampsia with severe features and medically indicated preterm birth at less than 35 weeks, which you could argue may or may not be that patient-oriented. But if you looked at placental abruption and certainly neonatal or fetal death, as part of the composite outcome, when they pull those out, they were not statistically different. And so I'm concerned that a study like this is about normalizing numbers and they didn't have a blinded control group and it, you know, it has a composite outcome and it's questionable whether it's patient-oriented. I just see a publication like this, especially in a high-impact journal, will lead to more intervention bias. Yeah, the, the challenge with those rarer outcomes, and especially, as you mentioned, with the 12 to 1 screening rate, they had 70 sites and they got 2,400 women. You'd probably have to have 10 times that number to be able to show a difference in neonatal outcomes. Then why put it in the composite outcome in the first place? Like, why throw it in there? Yeah. You know, like, what's the utility? Because you know it's not going to be powered. You know the prevalence is going to be so low. <laughs> I, I don't know. I just think it adds to some confusion. Because then they see, you know, that this was statistically different and the number needed to treat of 15 to prevent a composite outcome. And of course that, ooh, we're going to prevent fetal uh, neonatal deaths as part of that. No, actually, we don't have evidence for that. I'm actually a little surprised that they were able to even get this by an IRB because I think it would be pretty well accepted that you should treat blood pressure 160 over 110 in chronic hypertension in pregnant people. When I first got the article, because you picked this one, I was like, geez, somebody's running 155 over 105 and they're pregnant. I'm, you know, like, and that's chronic coming into pregnancy. I'm kind of like, hmm, this has got a lot of upward pressure on it. Bottom line. Treat chronic hypertension in pregnant people with a blood pressure over 140 over 90. Paper three. Abstract number three, a brief shared decision-making intervention for acute respiratory infections on antibiotic dispensing rates in primary care, a clustered randomized trial published in the Annals of Family Medicine 2022. Well, shared decision-making, this is one of our favorite topics to discuss on PCMA. And the objective of this study was to determine whether acute respiratory infections or ARIs, or I could go R E uh, <laughs> if I was a pirate, maybe. <laughs> I don't mind dad jokes. Uh, decision aids and a training package that came along with this 
could decrease antibiotic prescribing for ARIs. So as mentioned in the title, it's a cluster randomized design. It was pragmatic, a parallel group trial, and they allocated one-to-one based on general practices to either get the intervention or be in the usual care group, which was the comparison or control group. So they included general practices with at least one GP in that practice that agreed to participate, and that practice was not currently and had not recently, within the last two years, been involved in some other antibiotic use study. Now, it's really important to recognize that the randomization was not at the individual practitioner. It was not at the clinician level. They randomized practices, not the individual practitioners. That's the clustered RCT design. Now, the intervention that they had was a patient decision aid for the three acute respiratory infections, which were acute otitis media, sore throat, and acute bronchitis. And then they also got a 15-minute video. Now, they compared that to usual care of practice, and practitioners were not provided the intervention package until after the trial was completed. Their primary outcome of interest was the rate of antibiotics being dispensed for those three ARIs. Secondary outcomes of interest were the GP's knowledge of antibiotic use, prescribing influences, acceptability, usefulness, and self-reporting resource use, and finally dispensing rates for all antibiotics, regardless of the indication. So they found that the dispensing rates dropped. You ready for these numbers, Steve? Because yeah, I was shocked. It went from a baseline of 3.5%. That's it. Single digits. Yeah. Down to 2.9%. So they had a 0.6% decrease in the intervention group, and then it went from 3.2% baseline prescribing rate to 2.6%, so another 0.6% drop in the control group. So when they compared these two groups, they were not statistically different. The risk ratio was 1.01. And then when they looked at some of the secondary outcomes, the knowledge went up in the intervention group, but none of the other secondary outcomes were much different. So this clustered RCTs, this design comes with some strengths and weaknesses, and you can hear more about this. Swami and I talk about it on another show called Time to Talk a Little Nerdy, (laughs) and it's part of the MRAP family of shows, and that was the April 2022 edition where we dive into cluster RCTs. But I think more importantly, given the very low baseline rate And what I mean by very low, I'll define that 3% of antibiotic prescribing for these ARIs. It's not surprising that the intervention didn't make much of a difference. It would be really interesting to replicate this same study in America where prescribing for these conditions, and, and I'll rely on you, Steve, do you think that prescribing is higher or lower for antibiotics for these ARIs in your community? I don't remember any study with as low as (laughs) 3.5% antibiotic prescribing for acute respiratory infections. So my guess is that it's higher in our community. You know, certainly not in our office, obviously. Oh, no, or or with you individually, because we're individual. This was a clustered randomized trial, but. Yeah, so these, it was totally doomed. The study was doomed from the start because the doctors were already super smart 
Exactly. They, it was set up to like, we're not going to find anything or just, it's not in the culture to do this. Right. Yeah, totally. But I think that it would be an over-interpretation or an incorrect interpretation to conclude that shared decision-making does not and cannot work in these clinical scenarios. They just didn't demonstrate it that it worked in this scenario where you have such a low baseline prescribing rate. It's an open question of whether such an intervention would have a meaningful impact outside of Australia. Yeah, and it was interesting that the there was increase in knowledge, which is one important step. Well, uh, you and I are both educators. I hope what we do matters and that actually we can teach. Right. So, um, you know, <laughs> that was reassuring. Yes, we can increase people's knowledge by teaching them. Super. <laughs> Bottom line. A shared decision-making intervention did not decrease prescribing rates of antibiotics for acute respiratory infections in Australian GPs who have a low baseline rate of prescribing for these illnesses. Paper four. Abstract number four, we're continuing our theme here on shared decision-making, and this article is entitled Imprecision and Preferences in Interpretation of Verbal Probabilities, a Systematic Review from the Journal of General Internal Medicine. And we often communicate risk to patients using terms like rare, likely, possible, or common. We don't often use the term inconceivable, but do these terms, rare, likely, possible, inconceivable, do those terms mean to patients what we think they mean? I do not think of that word means what you think it means. Inconceivable. Exactly. So rare, likely, I don't think that word means what you think it means. So there is literature that patients have a very wide range in their interpretations of what these are called verbal probabilities. And there's actually multiple doctor and patient factors related to the use of numbers and graphs to explain the risk to patients like health literacy, clinician communication skills, and Clinicians use their explanation and use of verbal probabilities according to their judgment and previous experience. So that's going to be a little bias in the way the doctor discusses the risk. And patients receive this information differently. For example, even the politeness of the clinician impacts how likely a patient thinks a verbal probability statement is. So the authors conducted a systematic review of the literature to assess patient interpretation of and preferences for verbal probability information in a health context. They looked at only English language studies using the PRISMA approach, which I think makes sense because we're talking about language here and the English language. And they found 33 studies. They referenced 145 verbal probability terms, which I cannot think of 145 verbal probability terms. I wonder if inconceivable was, was used. That would be inconceivable. <laughs> and 45 of those terms included at least two studies, and 19 of them were in three or more studies. They did perform a risk of bias assessment. So Ken, do you think the patients think the word what we think it means? No, I don't. And I think we, we've had previous research that risk tolerances are different. So what we may perceive as low, the patient may not perceive as low or vice versa. Absolutely. So the numerical interpretations of each verbal term were extremely variable. Like if you say the word rare, 
patients thought that could mean it was between a 7 and 21% likelihood, which is to me, even 7 is higher than what I mean when I say rare to a patient. Common, 34 to 71%. And then there's really no difference between common and very common. Patients thought very common was between 39 and 72% likely. And also possible is about the same, 36 to 62%. So common, very common, and possible all essentially mean the same thing to patients if they try to put it into a numerical term. And in 12 of the studies, they did talk to the patients about how they like to get the information. And most participants preferred numerical information, either alone or in combination with the verbal labels. So I think this is probably one case, Ken, where we actually don't need any more literature. This systematic review pretty definitively tells us that when we use verbal probability terms, like rare, common, very common, it's really not helpful for patients to understand risk or benefit. Yeah, it really emphasizes that language matters and how important it is to have your terms defined prior to discussing an issue. Because even you and I could disagree on what is considered rare or common. And that also might be different to what a patient considers rare or common. And it really gets to one of the three pillars of evidence-based medicine, patients' values and preferences. And what the patient prefers may be based upon those numbers and the language that we use to describe the potential benefits and potential harms of any therapy. You did mention that patients prefer a quantitative information. So give me a number. You can give me some qualitative stuff too, but they want a quantitative number. And that makes sense because you can say 10% is 10%, right? That's what 10% is. But 10% may be considered rare to the patient, but not rare to us as clinicians. Yeah, absolutely. Bottom line. Using verbal probability terms like rare or common does not help patients understand, and we probably should use numbers to help our patients make decisions. Paper five. Abstract number five is the efficacy of therapeutic aquatic exercise versus physical therapy modalities for patients with chronic low back pain, a randomized clinical trial, JAMA Network Open 2022. Now, Steve, we continue on this quest of ours to find something, anything to be effective based on high quality evidence to treat low back pain. We are never going to give up. Yeah, no. We are going to persist until both of us retire (laughs) on studies for low back pain. Well, I picked this study uh, for a couple of reasons. One, to continue with that theme, but also because I was a swimmer at one point, a competitive swimmer. So I was wondering, is the answer just to Everyone into the pool. (laughs) So the objective of this study was to determine the long-term impact of aquatic exercise on patients with chronic low back pain. It was single-blinded. People knew if they were in the pool. I was in the pool! (laughs) Randomized. (laughs) Are they in the pool? Yes, it feels wet. (laughs) Of adults defined 18 to 65 years of age. And they had to have low back pain lasting at least three months. So that's the chronicity, right? That's how chronic the back pain is. And they were randomized to get 60 minutes of this pool time twice a week 
for these therapeutic aquatic sessions for three months, or they got a TENS unit, so a transcutaneous electric nerve stimulation, and an infrared ray thermal therapy. Now, the primary outcome was that Roland Morris Disability Questionnaire, that RMDQ that's so often used, and it goes from zero, meaning the patient has no disability, all the way up to 24. That's the highest number you can get indicating severe disability. And they looked at this at three, six, and 12 months because they were looking at the long-term impact of this three-month aquatic therapy session done twice a week. They had some secondary outcomes, including pain intensity, quality of life, and sleep quality. The total cohort consisted of 113 patients. The mean age was 31, so these are relatively young people, and it was about a 50-50 split for females and males. Therapeutic aquatic exercise group showed greater alleviation of disability with an adjusted mean group differences of somewhere around a two-point drop at three months, two-and-a-half-point drop at six months, and a a three-and-a-half drop at 12 months. And this was all statistically significant. And the therapeutic aquatic exercise was also more effective treatment than physical therapy modalities on pain intensity, quality of life, and sleep quality. But we need to dig into this one a bit more because it's just another study showing nothing really works well for chronic low back pain. And the single-blinded nature of this trial design can introduce some bias. But what jumped out at me was the baseline scores going into this study, like the previous one on antibiotic prescribing, you know, 3% of people getting antibiotics for those respiratory infections. These people on the RMDQ was relatively low. Well, what do I mean by relatively low, Steve, after that last paper? Eight. Eight on a score from zero to 24, with 24 being the badness and zero being no disability. So that's what I mean by relatively low. It was an eight. And these were younger people, you know, in the mean age, 31. So that's what I mean by younger. So it may not apply to older individuals and could just represent the natural history of this condition that you have back pain for three or four months. That gets you into the study. And maybe over the next three, six to 12 months, your back pain will improve no matter what you do. Now, both treatments demonstrated an improvement on the RMDQ score over time. And the decrease observed in the therapeutic aquatic group was just over five points. And I wanted to point that out. That five-point drop is what is generally thought to be clinically significant. So it just barely crept over the line from statistical significance into clinical significance with a five-point drop. However, the differences between the treatment group, you know, everybody into the pool, and the comparison group, wiring you up with a TENS unit and getting some ray gun on you, um, (laughs) it didn't reach a threshold of clinical significance. There wasn't a greater than five-point delta between those two. So you can't say that the therapeutic aquatic treatment is superior to non-aquatic treatments. Now, I think it would have been really interesting if they had a land-based exercise group to see if there was something other than just the water. You know, maybe it's the exercise that's being done in the water, but the water really doesn't have a role. I mean, could you have them standing on the deck and spraying them with water? Is that the magic ingredient here? And also it would have been nice if they had had a control group 
of usual care and, and see what happened to those individuals over time, over three, six, and 12 months. And, you know, regarding the secondary outcomes, like, like always, you know, they're interesting, but they should be generally considered hypothesis generating. Yeah, I did. I mostly agree with you. I do really appreciate that they looked at another modality that presumably is not going to be harmful. And they did talk in there about the minimally important clinical difference, which they looked at for disability, which I appreciate. And I agree with you that the going to the pool is a very strong placebo. Like I went through all the trouble of, you know, getting up and going to the pool two times a week. And so, yes, I'm going to say, you know, that I feel better. It's a time commitment, isn't it? Yeah. Because it was much longer sessions. It was, I think, double the length and time. And who wants to come out of that session going, yeah, I had to throw my swim trunks in, drive to the local pool, jump in for an hour, then shower after and out. You know, there's two hours out of my day, twice a week, and oh yeah, it didn't work. Oh no, no, I feel much better, doctor. Thank you. But the other group had lasers. Oh, they had frickin' lasers. Yeah. Frickin' lasers, ray guns, and TENS units. I mean, you know, TENS <laughs> units have got to at least give you a five-point drop. It's in the name. It's a TEN unit. <laughs> So I think I might disagree with you a little bit here, Ken. To me, this is enough of a strong study that if a patient is interested, that I could tell them that there's a chance that swimming and therapy in the pool could help them for their low back pain. So I wouldn't say to a patient like, no, you know, it's not useful. I would say there's a study that says that it might be helpful. And so you should do that. Oh, I would, hopefully you didn't get the impression that I said, uh, or, or am I, I'm clearly not making the claim that this does not work. I'm just not convinced that it does work or that this doesn't support that it's superior to other things like a TENS unit or the ray gun. So if they like being in the pool and they find it's not interrupting their day too much or their week too much and they enjoy it and absolutely I'm going to, and there's other benefits to exercise Besides improving your low back pain from a cardiovascular standpoint, a joint standpoint, there are other things to be gained by doing a group therapy pool session, having that done. So I agree with you that if a patient wants, I, I would be supportive of it. I think it's just an overinterpretation to say that there's something special or powerful or significant here that we should be advising everybody into the pool. Yeah. Bottom line. Therapeutic aquatic exercise seems to provide a small clinical benefit over time, but is not superior to the TENS and infrared ray thermal therapy in young patients with lowish RMDQ scores, and we don't know if it's superior to a land-based exercise program. Paper six. Paper number six. Thresholds to improve the accuracy of urinalysis from microscopic hematuria evaluation in women. Journal of Urology, February 2022. One of the main reasons urologists are consulted is for microscopic hematuria. And as primary care docs, we worry that our patients with microscopic hematuria might have something concerning. We really worry about bladder cancer or kidney cancer. And women actually have a higher rate of microscopic hematuria, but a lower rate of urologic cancers. And so some of the times when we refer a patient for microscopic hematuria, the result of the urinalysis might actually be from a so-called poorly collected 
or contaminated urinalysis or UA. So these authors compared referral UAs to in-office UAs properly collected in the urologist's office, and they also did catheterized specimens to improve the utility of hematuria screening in women. They studied 46 women who were referred for microscopic hematuria, and they compared matched specimens. True microscopic hematuria was defined as greater than three red blood cells per high power field on catheterization. So what are the results? Well, first of all, the data on 20 women was not included because, quote, missing voided samples due to a laboratory processing error. So that's pretty sloppy there. Catheterized urinalysis had, shockingly, significantly fewer red blood cells and squamous epithelial cells. Urine collected by so-called clean catch in the urologist's office had many fewer RBCs and epithelial cells compared to those that were collected before the referral. And fewer than two squamous epithelial cells with elevated red blood cells was a significant predictor for true microscopic hematuria. And so they concluded that about 40% of the referrals in women for this concern were thought to be inappropriate, mainly because of a high number of squamous epithelial cells. So there's no patient-oriented outcome here, sloppy methodology, but given the low probability of malignancy, I, I think this really highlights a really important quality improvement opportunity for our patients. We can limit our referrals based on the quality of the urine, mainly assure that there's no epithelial cells prior to making a referral for microscopic hematuria. And it's useful to know that just repeating the urine with good technique seems to make a lot of microscopic hematuria resolve. So we can definitely save our patients some unnecessary referrals. Yeah, this study let me talk about one of my pet peeves, or in this case, a pet pee. <laughs> um, and that's putting the methods section in a smaller font, de-emphasizing the importance of the methods. I mean, come on, this is the most important section of the whole manuscript. All right, pet peeve over. Other stuff. Where's the power calculation? I didn't see a power calculation. Yeah. And you already mentioned that, you know, the incomplete data. If they wanted to do some quality improvement process, how about not losing or, or having missing data attributed to laboratory processing errors in over 20 out of the 66 women? I mean, there's an area that could be improved, not just collecting the sample, but processing the sample. And then when I was listening to you, data tends to be messy, right? And, it, and it's clumpy and lumpy. And, you know, if you took urine samples from your patients on a daily basis, some days there would be no red cells and some days there could be red cells, a few red cells, and it bounces around, right? And so you're in your office and you get a urine sample. And on that day, you have enough red cells to, you know, trigger, this is microscopic hematuria and I'm going to do a referral and then you send them to the urologist to do another sample. What would have been interesting is to have a control group where you take all the people that you got a urine sample on that day as well, who didn't have microscopic hematuria, and then send them to the urologist and see how many of them had a subsequent sample where there were a few red blood cells and they had microscopic hematuria in the urologist's office doing a clean catch because maybe there's some regression to the mean going on in here, because we're only sending the patients that have microscopic hematuria, not all the patients that didn't on that one-time sample. 
Yeah, and to consider the pre-test probability also, which I guess the main factor would be age. So you might worry a lot more about a woman with who's 70 versus a woman who's 40. Postmenopausal, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and you know, you mentioned this about clinical outcomes. The low prevalence of disease means that this little study, and what I mean by little study is a N of 46. See how I put a number on that, Steve? I've learned from the paper you picked. <laughs> From this small study, because what we consider small might be different, lacked the power to conclude anything about malignancy. Bottom line. If you're going to refer one of your women patients to urology for microscopic hematuria, make sure the urine you're using to refer has minimal squamous epithelial cells. Paper seven. Abstract number seven. Providing a second opinion to Dr. Google with the WWW framework. Journal of General Internal Medicine 2021. This is one of the most enjoyable papers that I read this month because it was it was different. Like it was different, right? Yes. So we see patients who have done their own quote research that involves a consult with this very famous doctor, Dr. Google. <laughs> Stop it, Ken. You are embarrassing me. And then they request a second opinion from us as their primary care physician. And so these two authors from Minnesota, did I say that correctly, Steve? Yep. Minnesota provide their approach when discussing information or misinformation patients have found on the internet. Now, certainly patients have historically come to office visits with other health information that they've obtained from traditional media or from the friends and family program. The internet and social media has provided a tsunami of anonymous medical advice of varying quality. So trying to, f you know, pick out the signal from all that noise can be difficult. And this vast amount of misinformation in the healthcare sector has been coined the infodemic. So these authors propose a WWW. And that's not the, what is that? The World Wildlife Fund? No, that's not it. <laughs> the World Wrestling. What, what was the original WWW? World Wrestling. I think the WWF was the World Wrestling Federation. Oh, yes. And then it was the World Wildlife Fund, right? right. Yeah, and they got into right. a big brouhaha about, you know, trade trademarks or uh, whatever. This is the WWW, not the WWF. So each W stands for something. And the first W is for wait. Hey, oh, hold on, hold on just a second. Respond with empathy first. And I think this is a great thing. I mean, they could have said pause, but it wouldn't fit with this internet theme of <laughs> WWW. But really, I have to catch myself doing this sometimes too. So I don't have this monosynaptic response to somebody who says, well, you know, this Facebook uh, page group said X, Y, or Z about something. So I really have to fight that. So, you know, waiting before responding is, is a really good piece of advice. And the authors suggest using something called the save strategy. So you will support the patient, acknowledge what they're saying, validate certain aspects of it and emotion name to it. So that's the save strategy based on that higher order of wait before you respond. And then if you are responding, respond with empathy rather than uh-uh, so you don't feel like you're talking down to the patient. And then the second W is what? <laughs> no, 
what is to demonstrate curiosity? What are you talking about? Ask about what they found. You know, hey, that's interesting. I mean, I can't possibly know everything that's out there in the medical field. So sure. So what did you find? And be open to the possibility that it may have some value. And explore the issue with the patient. Ask about the source of the information and inquire, hey, what did you think of this? Because maybe they're bringing it forward to saying, hey, isn't this cray cray? Or they may be bringing it to say, you know, what do you think of this doctor? I think this looks really interesting and we should talk about it and do it. So I think that sort of what thing of demonstrating some curiosity about the information patients are bringing forward. And then the last W is the one I like the most. This is work together. We band together, we work together, we fight together. You know, discuss how or even if the information can be incorporated into their healthcare plan and recognize that some suggestions have a low potential for harm. So, okay. And while others have a greater potential for harm and it's like, mm, yeah, not so, not so quick on doing that. So I found this to be an enjoyable short read of what other clinicians sharing their experience, their approach to a common situation. Now, this is not some validated process, but rather just represents the opinion of a couple of clinicians. And, you know, we will all have our own style, what works for us and what doesn't work for us. And so what, what may work for me may not work for you, Steve, or other physicians. But I think there were some interesting techniques. They had a nice infographic there on techniques to consider. Yeah, and we're definitely have to manage an era where doctors maybe have less trust from the public. And for some patients, rightfully so, like patients from marginalized groups have not been treated well by the health system historically. And there was actually a really great white paper done by the Choosing Wisely group. They talked to patients off, many of them without insurance in inner cities. And the bottom line is patients want to feel listened to. So the WWW strategy is a great approach to just listen to the patient. And like you say, check yourself first, make sure you don't just have this hippocampal immediate response to the patient. Yeah. yeah. Listen. My lizard brain is, is, is lashing out. <laughs> exactly. So listen, and maybe there's some common ground that you can find there, but certainly responding immediately with, you know, oh, Dr. Google is a bunch of garbage is not going to help you with your patient. Yeah. And I use it as, hey, I'm really glad you're, you're interested and, and you're invested and you're caring about your healthcare. You know, you're, you're showing some enthusiasm by quote, doing your research, which many people means I'm reading up on this. What do you think, doc? And I think that's great. Uh, I have more engagement with patients and have usually richer discussions about the topic than if they had just come in and say, what should I do? A, a very paternalistic model. Bottom line. Dr. Google is a reality of practice. And we need to find constructive ways to communicate effectively with patients to maintain our therapeutic alliance. Paper 8. Abstract number eight is an editorial, which we very infrequently do on PCMA, but I thought this was a really important thing to talk about and kind of dovetails with some of the things we've talked about before. So this is from our good friends, Mark Abel and Henry Berry, and it's entitled Why Physicians Should Not Prescribe Aducanumab for Alzheimer's Disease from American Family Physician 
April 2022. And this does meet the Rick Bucata School of Title Writing. Physicians should not prescribe aducanumab for Alzheimer's disease. In January 2022 on PCMA, we talked about the use of surrogate endpoints to get drug approval. We also talked about the use of donanumab for Alzheimer's disease. That antibody targets amyloid beta proteins. And as we discussed on PCMA, it's not really useful. So welcome. Yay. Another drug just approved by the FDA, aducanumab, a monoclonal antibody approved based solely on its ability to decrease amyloid in the brain in patients with Alzheimer's or memory problems. So doctors Barry and Ebel, the gurus of EBM and family medicine, conducted a mini PubMed search, and they looked at clinicaltrials.gov to find all the literature on the drug. They found two published randomized controlled trials that report only a decrease in amyloid deposition. And then, you know, this is enough to talk about this editorial alone. They found three unpublished randomized controlled trials from the FDA approval documents, which included 2,000 or more patients randomized to the medication or placebo. It was given every four weeks for six to 12 months. All the patients had mild Alzheimer or mild cognitive impairment, and they had amyloid deposition on PET scan. So this is just like the editorial that just keeps on giving. The authors conducted their own mini meta-analysis on those studies that I mentioned found no statistically or clinically meaningful differences in cognitive function in those three trials. So these medications are approved based solely on amyloid reduction, and there's no data showing improved cognition or other patient-oriented outcomes. Long-term safety is unknown. There were some short-term harms that were shown, including cerebral edema and hemorrhage. That's similar to what we saw in the study we reviewed on denanumab. So it keeps getting worse. Aducanumab was rushed through the FDA approval process. The advisory committee members voted 10 to 1 against approval, but the FDA approved it anyway. And three of those members that voted against it resigned after this. The drug cost tens of thousands of dollars for a treatment course, not even counting the extra imaging and follow-ups that are required. So why are we talking about this? What are we supposed to do with this information? Well, like Dr. Zibel and Barry say, don't prescribe aducanumab. So that's a good take-home point. But also use the STEPS methodology when reviewing a new drug. It should be better than old drugs in some of these you know, steps, safety, tolerability, effectiveness, price, and simplicity. And also, if you hear about a challenging drug approval process like that, be very skeptical. And we should demand patient-oriented outcomes. Yeah, so the reasons why the FDA approved this really remain unclear based on the available data. You know, it could involve intervention bias, the chain of, well, it has pathophysiologic explanations, so that's a disease-oriented outcome, not a patient-oriented outcome, an appeal to emotion because this is such a devastating condition, Alzheimer's. And, you know, conflicts of interest may come up with regards to financial stuff. But I agree with Mark and Henry, not because I consider them friends, but because they're right. And we should not be lowering the bar. We should be raising the bar. Our patients deserve and expect the best care based on the best evidence. 
And the best evidence says, like their title, we should not be prescribing this drug. Bottom line. Don't prescribe aducanumab and apply the STEPS approach to reviewing new medications. Paper 9. Abstract number 9, Shared Reading and Risk of Social Emotional Problems, Pediatrics 2022. Now, when, when our kids were little, Barb and I often would fall asleep reading stories to the kids at night. And so I really like this study because it talked about shared reading experiences and it brought back some really great memories. It's not a great study, but it brought back some great memories. The goal of this study was to see if there was an association between shared reading and social emotional problems among young children. It was a retrospective study design of children aged 30 months to 66 months presenting to an academic pediatric primary care center. The primary outcome was the presence of social emotional problems determined by an age-specific cutoff on this scoring system called the Ages and Stages Social Emotional Questionnaire, or the ASQSE. So they got over 5,600 children into this cohort. It was about 50-50 male-female. 80% of the included children were publicly insured. 6% of the caregivers reported food or housing insecurity. And 3% of this cohort reported caregiver depression. And what they found was 16% of the ASQSE scores were suggestive of social-emotional concerns. 6% of the caregivers reported shared reading rarely. Now, children with rare shared reading had a higher risk of an ASQSE above the cutoff compared to those with shared reading on most days. So my bias, of course, is to interpret that shared reading is good, and I, I think shared reading is good, but this study design doesn't really support shared reading causes less social and emotional concerns. The big problem with this study starts with less than half of the eligible children in these practices had the ASQSE performed at least once. So we're not seeing the other half of their patient population. The next big issue is the retrospective observational nature of the study. There are so many possible reasons why shared reading is not taking place in some homes and it is in others. The shared reading could just be a marker for other social determinants of health. So we really need to be careful not to overinterpret this and saying, well, the fix for this is to make sure that parents are doing shared reading with their children. I think they should be doing shared reading with their children for a host of reasons, but not because this study says it will cause less social and emotional concerns. Yeah, definitely you should read with your kid. And for practices that are interested, look into the Reach Out and Read program, ROAR. It's a not-for-profit that provides books to kids that you can use during well child checks. And so we've given out hundreds, thousands of books to kids in our office. So check out Reach Out and Read. Roar. I love that. Yes. Oh, super. Let's include that in the notes for people of that resource. Bottom line. Reading to your children is good for many reasons, 
but this study does not provide strong evidence to support the claim shared reading can mitigate social-emotional problems. Paper 10. Abstract number 10. We're going to end, Ken, with a little hocus-pocus. Nice. Ultrasound versus landmark guided medium-sized joint arthrocentesis, a randomized control trial from Academic Emergency Medicine, February 2022. We've talked a bit about point-of-care ultrasound, or POCUS, on the extended family of right-on prime, including for skin and soft tissue infections. Recently, we had a segment on using it to examine eyeballs. So another possible use for ultrasound to help diagnose a painful joint or to get fluid off a joint when you want to know what's going on. And so this randomized controlled trial looked at what they call medium-sized joints, which is elbow, wrist, or ankle, and they investigated whether POCUS improves success with arthrocentesis. This was a single-center, prospective, randomized clinical trial of a convenient sample of patients who presented to an urban university hospital emergency department. So the patients had a suspected medium-sized joint effusion. They were undergoing arthrocentesis, and they were randomized to landmark-guided or ultrasound-guided. A research assistant who allegedly was blind to the study objectives judged the success. The person doing the procedure, this is really important to look at in ultrasound studies, is how experienced are the people doing the ultrasound. They were first to third year EMED residents who had had a four hour course during orientation and then also a one month ultrasound rotation in their intern year. Most of the joints were either wrists, half of them are wrists, or ankles were 36%. So this is mainly going to talk about wrists and ankles. They found 44 patients to enroll. What are the results? Overall success with ultrasound, 94% to tap the joint versus 60% without the ultrasound. Number needed to treat three. First pass success, 82% with the ultrasound versus 47% without. Also number needed to treat of three. And many of the failed aspirations that did not use ultrasound were found later by ultrasound to have minimal effusion. So I'm convinced no potential harms, handheld ultrasounds becoming more and more accessible. It seems like we could really start to use this selectively for these procedures in our practices. Well, it's a small study. And what I mean by small is 44 people. And it was done by residents, as you point out. So it would have been really interesting to say, how about we take experienced clinicians with 25 years of experience and give them a short session on landmarks and a short session on ultrasound and see which way they are better at doing it. Because my hypothesis would be those clinicians with decades of experience who have been practicing without using ultrasound would be pretty good at tapping these joints and maybe not as great because they didn't get trained originally on ultrasound. So it may be due to the cohort of people coming through. But ultimately, we want the patients to get the tap that they need. And so if you're great with hocus pocus, bring out the probe. If you're really good with your landmarks and have been quite successful over the years, super great, you know the end of the day, we want to see practically, did you get the tap or not? 
And if they got 90% plus using POCUS, uh, and if they compare that to experienced clinicians who got 90% not using POCUS, okay, you know, you got, you got what you needed to get. It was a convenient sample, so there, there could be some selection bias. And like you said, 50% were ankles. But there are some potential difficulties with just doing the joint aspiration itself. And if getting an ultrasound going, hey, uh, there's not a lot of fluid to be shooting at there, maybe you shouldn't be sticking a large cord instrument into a low probability situation of there's not a lot of fluid there to get. Yeah. So maybe if nothing else, this can at least challenge people to examine their practice for this to see how successful they are and if there's an improvement opportunity. Bottom line. Ultrasound guidance improves success for ankle and wrist arthrocentesis. Well, Steve, that wraps up the September 2022 edition of PCMA. This was a great episode. I love working with you. I can't wait to do the October episode next month. Talk to everybody next time. sum this all up. Summary. This is a summary and we're starting with PCMA and Vanessa, you are leading the charge. Take it away. PCMA, Article 1. Paper number one, U.S. Preventative Services Task Force Screening for Atrial Fibrillation, a recommendation statement from JAMA 2022. This was an update on the task force's 2018 screening recommendations, and while you might hope that such a rapid turnaround between recommendations meant there was some exciting new evidence or conclusion, that is not the case here. They looked at adults over the age of 50 without a diagnosis or symptoms of atrial fibrillation and tried to evaluate the benefits and harms of screening. Despite more and more data out there with the rise of smartwatches and smartphone apps, the task force still felt there was insufficient evidence in the studies they examined to make a recommendation either way. If a patient has symptoms, then this information, of course, does not apply. But for the USPSTF, the jury is still out when it comes to true screening for atrial fib. Which begs the question, why did they bother publishing it? Because there's literally (laughs) nothing to say. Paper number two, Chronic Hypertension in Pregnancy Trial Consortium. Treatment for mild chronic hypertension during pregnancy in NEJM May 2022. And it was nice to see this paper all about managing a chronic medical condition, in this case hypertension, in our patients who become pregnant. And like Steve, I had not realized there was a debate as to what the appropriate target blood pressure would be in this population. So this open-label, multi-centered trial of women with chronic hypertension randomized them to be on blood pressure meds for any elevated blood pressure, or to only go on medication if they had severe hypertension, a blood pressure of 160 over 105 or higher. But guess what? Those whose mild chronic hypertension was treated had fewer composite outcomes with an NNT of 14. So please treat the hypertension. Paper number three, a brief shared decision-making intervention for acute respiratory infections on antibiotic dispensing rates in primary care, a cluster randomized trial from the Annals of Family Medicine 2022. This was an Australian study looking to see if a shared decision-making intervention would impact the rate of antibiotic prescribing for acute respiratory infections. The subtext here being, these are likely viral infections, so of course, why are they getting antibiotics? Unfortunately, the GPs in this trial had already had such crazily low antibiotic prescribing rates in the 3% range that the shared decision-making intervention didn't really have much of an impact. 
But given that these low baseline rates seems like an anomaly here in terms of North American practice patterns, at least I think we could learn more if the study was carried out in a different practice environment. Paper 4, Imprecision and Preferences in Interpretation of Verbal Probabilities in Health, a Systematic Review, in the Journal of General Internal Medicine in December 2021. As I was listening to Stephen Ken discuss this paper, my mind was just racing, thinking about all of the descriptive terms I use when I'm talking about risk with my patients. We all do it. We want to convey risk and probabilities to patients in terms that they'll understand. And this paper was a good reminder that descriptors are imprecise and subject to interpretation. So whenever possible, we should use actual numbers. And I think that my, I can count on one hand the number of times I've seen this. I'm pretty sure that's an actual number. Right, Vanessa? I think so. (laughs) Paper five, efficacy of therapeutic aquatic exercise versus physical therapy modalities for patients with chronic low back pain, a randomized clinical trial from JAMA Network Open 2022. Ah, low back pain. Here we are again, old friend. Just when I thought I was out, they pulled me back in. This time, the study looked at whether twice-a-week pool-based exercises helped adults with at least a three-month history of low back pain, more than treatment with TENS machines and infrared ray thermal therapies, which sounds very exciting. Those in the pool-based exercise group did show statistical improvement in symptoms, and so did those in the physical therapy group, and neither really crossed over into clinical significance. I'm going to side with Steve here, though, and say that given the lack of harms from a pool-based exercise regimen, if a patient's interested, then I'm going to let them know that there's at least some evidence to state that it might help. Paper 6, Defining Properly Collected Urine Thresholds to Improve the Accuracy of Urinalysis for Microscopic Hematuria Evaluation in Women. I was honestly surprised when I started medicine, and I still am surprised at how difficult it is to get a good quality urine sample, and also at how important it is that it be a good quality sample. So this paper will help us all figure out what's a good enough urine sample to say, hey, my patient has microscopic hematuria and needs to see urology. So here's the pro tip. If the urine has red blood cells with less than two epithelial cells, That, my friends, is a good sample. More epithelial cells than that? Well, try again for the cleaner catch. Paper 7, providing a second opinion to Dr. Google with the WWW framework from the Journal of General Internal Medicine in 2022. This was a great paper in that it gave us some concrete tools for navigating those appointments where our patient comes in armed with their internet research on a topic and they want us to weigh in. If we aren't careful, these appointments can quickly devolve into back-and-forth arguments where the only outcome is mutual frustration. So here is their advice. Try the WWW strategy. W is for wait before jumping the gun and getting riled up to sit and listen to why the patient chose to do this research. The next W is what. Find out what their research shows and explore that. Showing humility is going to go a long way to having the patient feel that they are being heard, and you might also learn something. And then the final W work. Work together. Try to find a way where you might be able to use some of the information that they found, if they believe in it as well, that they brought forward and use it to help them. Obviously, if it is harmful, then this is going to warrant more discussion, but otherwise use it as a chance to discuss their concerns and really praise them for being so involved in their healthcare. Also, this is a great concept to review with students and residents because those can be very tricky conversations for our learners. Paper 8, Why Physicians Should Not Prescribe Aducanumab for Alzheimer's Disease. 
in American Family Physician 2022 in the month of April. And here's the reason why physicians should not prescribe this MAB for Alzheimer's disease, because it doesn't work. It decreases the amount of amyloid in your brain, but whoop-de-doo, it doesn't make any difference on any kind of an endpoint that a patient or their family would care about. So are we going to prescribe this? No, not at all. Don't take this MAB, at least not for Alzheimer's disease. Paper 9, Shared Reading and Risk of Social-Emotional Problems from Pediatrics 2022. So this study looked to see if there was any association that they could find between the experience of shared reading between an adult and a child with the risk of developing future social-emotional problems. This was a pretty big study um, in terms of the timeline it covered, up to 66 months, and it had about 5,600 patients in it. They did show that shared reading was associated with a decreased rate of social-emotional problems developing later on, but be really careful here not to over-interpret the results and make conclusions that shared reading actually directly decreases social-emotional issues. It is more likely that shared reading is in fact a marker of social determinants of health. So this is something that you have to be careful about when you're looking at this data. Paper 10, Ultrasound versus Landmark Guided Medium-Sized Joint Arthrocentesis, an RCT in the Journal of Academic Emergency Medicine in February of 2022. This trial found that ultrasound was not surprisingly, more successful than landmark-guided arthrocentesis, and not just more successful, but a lot more successful. The overall success rate with ultrasound was 94% versus 60% just using landmarks. That's an NNT of three, in case you learned something and were interested after listening to Hobie. So if you, like me, are a late adopter of ultrasound, this study is really our cue that it's time to get on board with the cool kids and adopt ultrasound into our practices. Okay, so that was PCMA, 10 great papers. So now let's hear about what happened on the rest of the show. It's Reviews and Perspectives with Dr. Hobart Lee. In Reviews and Perspectives with Hobart Lee, Hobie and I talked about the number needed to treat, and he first reminded us of what the NNT is, and then we talked about the NNT of common interventions that we do in primary care, and the numbers are surprising. So the NNT for treating hypertension to prevent a death at five years is 125. Even worse than that is the NNT for prostate cancer screening. We need to screen 770 men between the ages of 55 to 69 to prevent one death. Kind of humbling. Definitely. NNT, my favorite statistic. The Generalist. Generalist. Next up came the generalist. I used to dread when a patient would come to the clinic, like in my outpatient office with a swollen and sore leg, because I knew I was then going to have to call the emergency room, send them to the emergency room, and from there they were going to need a formal ultrasound, which actually had to be at an even different hospital, all of which took time and resources. But in this segment, Casey Parker reminds us that once we're trained, we can use POCUS in the office to look for a DVT, assuming we have a POCUS in the office. He gives a great stepwise approach and some really good tips and tricks to making your scan more successful for this particular problem. Eosanophilic esophagitis with Chris Drum. Chris Drum joined us to talk about eosinophilic esophagitis, and he shared the case of one of his patients, a young guy who ended up with a food impaction and had to go to the ED to get this dealt with, and then on scope found out that his patient had eosinophilic esophagitis. And this condition, Vanessa, really seems to be getting more and more common, at least in my part of the world. And treatment can involve avoiding some foods that trigger this over-exuberant immune response, can involve PPIs, and even esophageal dilatation. 
So put this on your list of things to think about when your patients are having a hard time swallowing. Specialist Corner. This month on our Specialist Corner, I was joined again by our always friendly GI doc, Dr. Chadwick Williams. He went through the process of when to suspect and how to work up a patient for NAFLD. NAFLD, of course, stands for non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. And this is increasingly common in wealthy countries and is leading to more and more cases of chronic liver disease and cirrhosis. Patients are often asymptomatic, so you won't necessarily pick this up on history. But think about it when patients are overweight, they have diabetes, dyslipidemia, or metabolic syndrome. Be sure to rule out other causes of fatty liver if a patient's LFTs seem to be out of whack, and calculate a patient's FIB4 score to help determine who needs referral to hepatology and who can wait a little while. Of course, there's no specific treatment for fatty liver, but encouraging healthy lifestyles with well-balanced diet and regular exercise are key. Hiccups. Our urgent care piece was on hiccups. In this piece, Mel gives us an overview of the history of hiccups, far more interesting than I thought, and then he goes over their management. A good refresher on this common and annoying condition. Rural medicine talks. And then rounding it out with rural med, it was the case of the gurgling tummy. This was one of my favorite cases of my career to date. This man came in with intermittent history of abdominal discomfort and occasional gurgling in his tummy, as he put it. He thought it was perhaps related to the times that he drank some spring water. He also noticed a bit of bloating on and off. During the exam, I percussed out a huge area of dullness over his abdomen. My stethoscope pulsed when it was resting on his abdomen. And when I put an ultrasound probe on his abdomen, well, all I saw was a huge black mass. So, pulsatile abdominal mass, vague abdominal discomfort. Where does that get you? That gets you a medevac. And the stars aligned amazingly, and he was in the tertiary care center so quickly it made my head spin. And the diagnosis? Massive pancreatic pseudocyst. Totally bonkers. So that was it for September 2022. Of course, don't forget to check out all of the other offerings we have here in the MRAP universe. We have Corpendium, the online textbook. We have C3 episodes where you review core concepts. There's the MRAP show proper and, of course, emergency medical abstracts as well. And lots more. So don't forget to check out all the other options in there in our MRAP offerings. And until we see you back here in the space for the October 2022 show of Right on Prime, keep doing what you do. Because what you do matters.